Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. We are on part three of our march through CBS All Access. This is the Stand miniseries. It's been a blast so far. We got episodes on one and two. And, oh man, baby, can you dig the panel that we have today to discuss episode three? Uh, who, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself first? Yes, this is Michael. This is how we do it. <laughs> Rothman. Um, ready to talk about my favorite Weezer song, Blank Pages. Um, and very excited today. Is that a real song? Of, no, it's Simple Pages, but I'm going to go with it because uh, we had Two a lot of Weezer. With, with the Blank Pages mistake. We're going we're gonna to keep, no, keep going with uh, Weezer uh, coverage on the Losers Club because we're all Weezer fans here. Um, big true. rivers. We're all swimming in the river, as, so to speak. So um, Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, big, big, really excited for this one because uh, let's just say my favorite character in not only the stand but in all of King's Dominion, one of them <laughs> is in this episode. So we're gonna go all in on him. So can't wait to hear about it. Uh, uh, perhaps thoughtfully while wearing a fedora that's yes. slightly. Um, uh, and then who, we heard another <laughs> voice. Uh, who was that? Was that Justo? You know what? It sure was. This is Justin uh, Joe Gerber. <laughs> And Awful. Wow. thrilled to be back for episode three of CBS All Access, uh, The Stand. Great. Like you you know, for <laughs> oh, you know, I, I have a couple things here. One, has anybody, we haven't commented on that, the weird opening credit sequence when it, it, it says the, yeah. and, uh-huh. then it, and then it says tan, yeah. and it says stand. <laughs> so should we call this the tan stand as to differentiate it from the, the stand? The tan, the tan cast. Tan cast. Uh, yeah, I think tan stand is a good is just so there's less <laughs> confusion go. as we discuss the episode. It's Let's like see because the it. S and the and the, oh and uh, I I forget it. I messed this up. It's like because <laughs> the H becomes with... an A and the E becomes an yeah, N and then the yeah. S and the D add. It's like a very strange decision. Um. Well, Mac, you're forgiven for messing that up because you're sitting like Mason Verger, and uh, that's right. Because you you have a you have some kind of health issue. Why don't you tell everybody about it when you introduce yourself? I am Wolfman, the Magic Lady Mac Gerber. <laughs> that's a long name. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at a commission. I'm I'm uh, sitting here uh, in my very relaxed in my chair with the microphone right up to my face. Uh, I I incurred an injury while running uh so i might uh never walk again no i'm just kidding i, I don't know what's going on i'm gonna go i hear that uh, i hear that barney <laughs> is in the shower with your sister that's a hannibal <laughs> reference from thomas harris's hannibal novel um great novel so i'm excited about today's episode uh i think <laughs> yeah there's a lot lot to discuss here um so we're gonna get going oh by the way my name is uh rockin randall flagburn and uh, very excited to talk about episode three of The Stand. Man, this one is all over the place. So I think the road so far, uh, our first section here, we've got a lot to sift through. So hit the song, Mike.
All right, I love that intro. Let's begin where the episode begins, um, of its many, many, many flashbacks, and sometimes dreams within flashbacks. Uh, we begin... Oh, wait, Mike, did you want to, like... Uh, sure. Did you, did you want to offer, like, the big picture overview yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. So when I was taking notes for this, I realized that I was almost taking, like, a, a little, like, check box in my head of just, like... You know when you go to, like, events when we used to be able to do that before the pandemic? And mm-hmm. there's always, like, some, like, you know, sad sap at the, at the front of the door that has to, like, click... Yep. Go in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Go in. I just kept doing that with notes of just how many times that we just hit back or went forward or went left or zigzagged over to another character. So I, I collected all my notes of when that happened. And uh, here it is. Nadine with flashback to growing up in foster care slash being groomed by flag slash meeting Larry slash flag calling to her again to meet up with Harold. Then we also have Franny with flashback to meeting Stu for the first time slash we're also checking in on her baby at the hospital. Uh, There's also a Stu's flashback, even though we don't really necessarily see where the origin of that is. Uh, (laughs) Meeting with Glenn and Kojak for the first time. And we also get those wonderful paintings. Uh, Nick Andros, a.k.a. <laughs> Andros uh, of uh, Nazareth, or uh, Jesus <laughs> of, of Nazareth, uh, or Andros of Nazareth. Um, Andros the, of ba- the, the band, the band yeah. Nazareth. Nazareth hair of the dog, uh, hair of uh, the Nick, because uh, he's got long hair in this. But uh, we see his flashback to his shoyo assault and meeting Tom, and also we get a dream within the flashback to being groomed by Flag as his right hand man. Something that we already know has gone to Lloyd Henry. In the second episode, um, which makes that decision in the second episode all that much more uh, gratifying, I guess. Um, but also to make things even more confusing, we're getting the second hospital setting in the same episode, too. So we have a hospital setting that's in Boulder and then also a hospital setting that looks vaguely familiar uh, with uh, in Shoyo. And then on top of it, we have a Ferrari guy coming into town and bringing in word from Flag. And I have to mention that Jen who was uh, unfortunately unable to be on the episode today, um, said that the Ferrari guy uh, reminded her of the get out of my dreams and get into my car guy. <laughs> <laughs> so The Billy Ocean well, song? Yes, the Billy Ocean song. Um, but Just reminded her of the song? Like just the, the idea, song, like yeah. When the car yeah. stops and then the yes. door opens? I think that's what she was, she was like <laughs> hoping that the song was playing during that scene. Yeah. <laughs> It should be noted that this is actually one of, I believe, one of the, f- the shorter episodes, too, that we've had. So um, yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff in there. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, much to discuss. Uh, so that's that's how much this episode bops around uh, almost at a reckless pace. But at the same time, I think uh, it, it all feels very purposeful, I would say, especially rewatching it. I could see um, the way the writers were thinking. There was a lot of, you know, um, introduction of characters that is then... Uh, pivoted into flashbacks that then the flashbacks sort of dovetail with the next scene. There's there's like sort of a weird elegance to the way it all works, but that doesn't mean it won't be confusing. Well, um, so, I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Justin. Something about the way that it's structured is it, you, you, I, I count you, you get three flashbacks in the first 15 minutes. And then 15 minutes in, it says um, four months earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then 10 minutes later, there's Nick's flashback. It says five months earlier. And then we jump back to uh, Stu in the Woods, where I just feel like if you're a casual viewer, if you don't know the stand, it's possible you think he was just walking around the woods yeah. in the present time, not yeah. about to meet Glenn. Yeah. So I, I, I know it's purposeful. I, I mean, I don't feel like um, they're just cutting and pasting 
here and there. But it's still, it's a real mess. I think I texted you when I was watching episode two. Ten minutes in, I, I thought, I said, um, oh, no, the flashback is not working. <laughs> yeah. This, is, this yeah, was a mistake. This was a mistake. It's, uh, it's, it's tough because, yeah, you're right. I actually noticed, too, the lack of consistency in terms of saying when a scene takes place. Like, if you're going to flashback and say four months ago, five months ago, you got to do that for all of them. But that's tough when it's all of them. So, and I, uh, yeah, and so, I don't know. It's, like, one of those tough decisions. But I don't know. I think I still stand by the flashbacks to a degree uh, because I, I do think it's at least an interesting way to tell the story. But as we mentioned on previous episodes, the scenes are really starting starting to show uh i mean just in a a small example it's like we get the scene where uh larry visits harold in the last episode and we he talks about how harold's signs like guided him but it's not until this episode that we actually see him like see the sign in the flashback and actually comment on what that harold's done for him in that regard so it's like it's it's a little bit you know reckless in that way uh mac what were you gonna say no i was just gonna say that that could have been a cool reveal and i think that by doing by setting it in the the now as in Boulder, I feel like it's a little you lose a you lose a lot of really cool reveals by already giving that up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that like that specific one. Also, the there's just no peril because again you already know all these people make it to Boulder. So yep. I mean yes, there's still more story to tell from the Boulder onward. But for the first, like, four or five episodes, you're just like, okay, everyone's fine. Like, you know everybody makes it there. So it's like they're never really well, in danger. So you it. don't – but you uh, don't feel – you don't feel – <laughs> Yeah, right. You don't feel we knew feel she didn't make it the, either. <laughs> the second episode. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying is you don't feel what I think you're supposed to feel in the first half of that book, which is, you know, dread and concern and, you, you know, of, of the world ending. And, and you don't know what's going to happen next. You know, mm-hmm. it, it kind of pacifies that whole situation. And I understand with COVID, maybe that was an active decision so that people, you know, it's, you know, so that we weren't sitting in the that misery. dread, you know? Yeah. I don't know. But I, I still think that's a mistake. I still think that's a mistake. Yeah. This was done. This was wrapped a while ago. I, have, uh, I do, yeah, I do have a question on the format. And I was think this is something I was thinking of while I think we were being passed around to the third or fourth fl- flashback in a row. Ugh. Now, when I was in short story classes in grad school, I would absolutely be reprimanded. I probably would have been like thrown to the corner and like held up to the wall. What kind of creative writing class was it? Oh, the guy was crazy. But um, is it? I don't think you can do lateral passes with flashbacks. Like I feel like you have to go to point of origin, right? Like you can't just Uh, go from flashback to flashback. Like that's just not something you can do. That's like. And that's what happens in this episode. I mean, you go literally from the past to the past without really realizing why, like who. Like when mm-hmm. I mentioned the stew thing, I honestly, and this is the second time I'm watching, I do not remember us like sitting with Stu and going, yes, this is, this is his memory of it. We only went from, hey, we went to the past through Franny sitting there in the, ho- in the hospital room. And then because we were in that scene and we saw the past of Stu, we were then, they thought logically, like, we could then follow the, that past memory with Stu. Like, that doesn't make sense. You can't do that. Like, well, mathematically, thing too, it Mike, just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Another thing is, if you're going to, if you are going to do something like that, you need visual cues. Mm-hmm. So you need to, people need to look different. And everyone mm-hmm. looks the same. Yeah. Because honestly... You know, no one's stopping for a haircut on their way to Boulder. You know what I mean? Like, that, like you're not living your life. Like, if anything, 
What about an audio cue? You know, like in the last one, it's like. Give us yeah, and I think I think that they. I think that's actually not a bad idea. It's confusing. <laughs> it just makes me like consider like how pivotal that sound was to Lost. You know, yeah, it yeah. was it, it never. Yeah, it always let you know. Okay, we're going backwards now. And yeah, it is just, this episode kind of careens around. But the thing is, like, you know, like in the first episode, it all felt fairly, um, I don't know, streamlined and elegant. Here, I do think that there's intricacy and, like, art, like, what's what I'm looking for? Like, craft in the way that these, most of these flashbacks are structured. It's just that there's too many of them. And yes. that, to, that I think, is where the issue comes in. And it's, and it's hard. So you can, like, almost see all the rewrites that went into the script, right? They're like, oh, we have to add this scene here. We need to, you know, how can we slot this around? Like, it's almost like a puzzle. Well, uh, yeah. Specifically the Nick stuff, right? It just yes. feels, it's incredible how, I was doing the math, and overall, we're getting three more hours of this, of the tan stand, as I think we <laughs> maybe call it, according to the credits, where it says the tan stand. But it's, this Nick Andrews material feels so compressed. I feel like they mm-hmm. resolve this entire uh, arc before Boulder in what fifteen minutes? And yeah, just, well, maybe it felt longer in the miniseries. Like, you know, he's he's with Doc Soames. Oh, there's so much. Yeah, there's I, so much there. I, I, I want to talk about that. Um, but let's let's start at the beginning of the episode. Um, and just sort of walk through the big beats here. Uh, we open with Nadine. It's a flashback. She's a child in a boarding home playing uh with a Ouija board with some of her friends and uh basically the Ouija board gets out of control and it starts uh sketching in the floor it's a very like conjuring kind of horror scene you know it's like a very kind of stylish and silly a uh, bit of of like broad horror um especially really how rushed. like yeah just how good the penmanship is too when it carved into the wood and they deem <laughs> yeah, my queen i think i mean in, in the book that happens but i think it it's just on a piece of paper right and i yeah. think it's also when she's a little older too um oh she's in I, high school maybe or something i think so yeah, yeah. um and, and it's not it's not so it's there's a lingering process to it you know like it's not just like it happens very um like this almost feels like Pre, it makes it feel very predestined, whereas in the book, it, it, it kind of feels a little more subtle. Um, you yeah, know, I, yeah. You know, I thought a lot about those questions with Nadine. Like, basically, that flag chose her from a very young age, uh, and yeah, I just it's it's an interesting it's an interesting concept, and it it it's something that I want to talk a little bit more later. It helps, I think, when you see Flag is more of a rogue agent rather than an agent of some grander evil like i i think the way that i best like to view randall flag is as sort of um uh kind of a lone villain like he's not he's motivated he's like he's in his own bubble he's not taking orders from anyone he is uh somebody who travels the world looking for opportunistic ways to gain power and um and uh, i think exploit people and so it strikes me that yes maybe this individual demon would be so smitten with nadine for some reason and claim her and then now that you know he's he's nudged his way into this apocalypse he's like okay now's the time to bring her to me but that's i still I, that's the thing i struggle with most is like why did he choose her why is he uh why does she need to be his bride and like why did he know that when she was a little child (laughs) you know so i don't know it's something i struggle with a lot uh because when you when you place flag like as the devil or that he represents like all that is evil then it makes it feel as if nadine is doomed uh by 
you know, fate. Whereas if he's just an individual opportunist, then it's more so that this one man has claimed you and you can, you know, uh, shake free from him if you want. Um, So I don't know. Those are, I think, questions that I'm going to be thinking about as we move into the next several episodes. That was always my defense of the Nadine choice or, or lack of choice from the novel is I did feel that she was fated and doomed to this existence. And I know it's unfair, but, you know, when evil is involved, awful things happen. Yeah. And I think that Randall Flagg, obviously, he's not the devil, but I do think that he's obviously in a realm above humanity. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, look, you see that the way that that Ouija board flipped around? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. serious spirit. But it, it just feels so pick and choose to me. You know, like, you have literal scenes... And especially in this one, in the last two, where we see two characters who have to make a choice, you know, it's between Flag and Mother Abigail. So they, you know, try to create this sort of objective look of, oh, these characters have choice. But then you also have Nadine, who seems like this outlier. Yeah. And so, like, well, if, if, if Randall Flagg could do that, and if that's the, why does he just do that with all the, the people? I don't he think needs? he can do it with everybody. I think that there's something specific uh, about her. Yeah, it just feels so like, like plot armor. Yeah, I know what you mean, Mike. Uh, Mac, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say something that I want to throw out there is, you know, what I thought was interesting in this episode was you see Flag actively, and something I thought was missing last episode, was that you see Flag actively trying to sway Nick to be his right-hand man. And obviously we know he's lying. But because of that scene, you could also posit that maybe he set up multiple women to be his queen. You know what I mean? And mm. he's and then they either died of the plague, died on the way, or whatever it is. And she's like the only the best case scenario that he's just choosing to follow through with because things worked out for her in terms of her living. Or she's and the most susceptible. Along. Yeah, exactly. I like, I like that concept. I, I think that yeah. makes more sense in this version because now that we've seen him actually try to sway someone good and lie to them about their role in the world and stuff. I mean, you know, he very well could have just, you know, totally just killed Nick once he showed up in Las Vegas or something. But, you know, <laughs> well, I would well, actually you know, like argue. Maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, his way of just like luring good people there. And then he just like offs them, you know what I mean? Because he knows that they can't trust that they're actually bad or whatever, you know? Well, I would disagree just in the sense that I don't, I don't think he's lying to him. I think he, I think Nick is maybe this, um, this person who, because I don't think anybody's like inherently good or evil in this world. I and what I do like about the show is that everybody is having both dreams. Um, you know, the the guy from Vegas who shows up who's been crucified, he says that he's been dreaming of Mother Abigail yeah, too. Right. So he was drawn yeah. in both directions and he made a choice and that's what happened with nick i think that he is being serious and that he sees potential in nick to be someone who could help him build vegas and uh nick rejected him because and then that's why this is like why i'm okay with him making lloyd who seems kind of like a fuck up to be his right hand because i imagine that a lot of the people that maybe he wanted to make his right hand man uh are basically like the people who are perhaps contain I don't know, more maturity or uh, empathy or things like that, uh, they choose not to go with him. The only people yeah. are going to choose to go with him are, are pretty are probably going to be people who don't really have a moral compass or, or want to sow chaos, and Lloyd is probably the best of what he can get, you know? And so that's what I like is, is we actually do see this ch- moment of choice for Nick where he says... Uh, you know, and then and then they follow that by showing Nick in the hospital actually helping Roy, who beat the shit out of him, and taking a towel on him. And you see, okay, w- what is it that separates the people who go to Vegas and who go to um, 
who go to uh, Boulder, and I think there is this sense of, of you know, of uh, selflessness and mm -hmm. a lack of selfishness, and that the fact that he, we see that in Nick, that he will help people even though they've hurt him, uh, that is what can allow him to say no to Flag. So, Justo, what were you going to say? I mean, if you look at the three people's uh, societal traits, right, uh, when you look at Harold, um, Lloyd, and Nick, you know, Harold obviously has been picked on his whole life. He's basically a you know, QAnon type of person. <laughs> QAnon. Um, and then you've got Lloyd, who's obviously a criminal, but desperate. Mm -hmm. These people are all desperate. You know, Lloyd's about to die in prison eating his cellmate. Nick, you know, he can't hear, he can't speak. So I think Flag goes to them because these people are at their lowest. These people are kind of the of out, they're, they're outcasts, essentially. Yeah. And That's he feels like he can, he can manipulate them that way. It's just like a cult. Yeah. And in many and he ways, is, and it, just it is admittedly. He's definitely more explicit than I would say the 1994 miniseries. I mean, he literally says like, you know, all you got to do is worship my feet mm -hmm. <laughs> or worship mm -hmm. the feet that I walk. So he's pretty yeah. explicit about it. But that kind of reminded me of what you were saying last week, uh, Mac, which is like not a great sales pitch. You know, like if you're going to try to like hook someone yeah, in, don't don't make it seem like <laughs> you are the Antichrist. Like yeah. <laughs> just like, just know, say, right? like, you know, there's great things for you in Vegas. And like, like you know, you can purpose. just say loyal. You just be loyal <laughs> yeah. to me. <laughs> Yeah, it was a little too my much. Back. Like, have my back. I was yeah. like, even if he said that to to Lloyd, like fuck up Lloyd in this version, I still, I would still think even Lloyd would be like, I don't know if I want to like worship yeah. you, dude. That seems a little much <laughs> do to I me. Worship you, dude. Like all you gotta do is tell me and be like, look, I'll, I'll give you your own blockbuster video and give you like a fifty dollar <laughs> gift certificate. You can you buy know, some I'm candy. I'm also like, like blockbuster man. video. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm at the trinkets. Like just 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 throw me like the rock necklace, and I'm like, oh, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> is this uh, from the Nature Company? So, yeah. I was thinking though, in the in when he's talking into to Mother Abigail in the dream, I was still waiting for him to go. I can <laughs> hear, can talk, I can talk. I can talk. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Basically, this episode begins with Nadine. Um, and her arc, basically, we see her preparing for the first day of school. She's going to be one of the teachers that's playing, that's here. Um, we flashback, we get flashbacks to how she met Larry on the road. And we meet, get to know a little more about little Joe, uh, scene from the book <laughs> where he sort of attacks Larry with a knife. Um, and Larry is yeah, still like reeling from losing Rita. So he says, maybe I'm meant to be alone. And uh, basically, um, uh, you know, Nadine convinces him that they're better together uh it's not really you know i don't know if if we really see larry reckon that much with rita's death i wish we saw it a little bit more uh oh, just yeah and then he points out the graffiti on the on the road and says i've been following harold yeah when you start to describe the scene and me saying that right now that is literally the, the length of time we spent establishing their entire relationship yeah in like 90 seconds yeah yeah well it's that goes tough. back to like the There's heather no graham but that's what goes back to like last week with heather graham where Larry walks up. I mean, maybe Larry just has this effect on everyone. But he walks well, he's up. He's very good looking. He is very good looking, yeah. and maybe everyone loves his music. But like, he walks up to Heather Graham last episode. She kind of sees him. Hey, what's going on? How you know? Yada yada yada. Thirty seconds later, you know, you got a great warm presence. I want to follow you. Like, if this is a running joke throughout the season, I'm going to buy it. But to your <laughs> point, it's literally been thirty seconds, and you're living in a post-apocalypse society. Like, even rewatching it the second time, Sammy was like. Well, that was fast. Like, you guys known each other for 30 seconds. Like, you're already going to go walk. Look, with this I'll guy. say this, Mike. I'll say this as a single person. 
Um, we're dealing with like the polar, like the exact opposite in terms of a pandemic. And I'll tell you right now, I've been extremely horny over the last nine months. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I can't even imagine if you if we if we had a virus that was, you know, 99 times as fatal. I would be just like, anybody want to hook up? Let's go. Like I would, I really would. That wouldn't hesitate either. If Heather Graham was coming on to me, yeah, man. Like, oh, okay, I guess there's sure. Why not? Well, yeah, Why no, I get just that. Have sex right now, I, I'm just saying, you know, you're Heather Graham. You're sitting in the middle of like nowhere. You don't know anyone. It's it's just, these these things feel very convenient. Well, the Heather Graham character, the way that Rita's portrayed. I, I listened to the episode, and I agree with you, especially Randall. Like. The, the the character is is weak in the miniseries. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It's it just make any yeah. Sense. It was kind of just a failure of of the fundamentals of the character, like not yes. really understanding what the character brings to the story. But uh, yeah, as for Nadine, we we spend a little bit more time with them. I actually I, we see Larry, Nadine, and Joe hanging out at a baseball field. I actually kind of like that. We just get this little hangout scene. We still don't really get like a sense of. Like, we don't learn a lot about, like, Nadine and Larry, like, their relationship, but we do get this scene where she sort of watches him teach Joe how to play guitar, and you can see a little bit of, of well, maybe this is, you know, she's falling for him a little bit or something along those lines, but it's a, it's a neat little scene. I'm glad it's in there, and that's when we get to hear Baby Can You Dig Your Man, the song. Maybe yeah. we can talk about that later during Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Oh, yeah. uh, there's, a huge, there's a huge possible King's Dominion in that scene. Ooh, save it for that King's be, Dominion. That could be uh, foreshadowed in this in this series Ooh, as a matter of fact I'm excited for that yeah. I, I don't know what it is but uh, yeah. we will wait in anticipation uh, and then Nadine's arc <laughs> is sort of closed out with uh, with what are you laughing at it's like it's we like can't the, wait to, yeah to, you, sound like Bar, you sound like Barnum and Bailey Circus over here it's like Randall I'll tell you if you promise to kiss my feet and follow me yeah. and worship me I am the ringmaster of, of this podcast so oh Nadine's arc closes out with her bringing out the Ouija board again um um, and that sort of summons this um, fantasy dream sort of sequence where she's in the desert with Flag, and uh, basically he, uh, she wants him. She's horny. She wants to be with him, and uh, he basically says, "I need you to be my eye in Boulder." Um, and he says, "Kill the old witch and her five puppets." And he says, "I've already found the weapon. I need you to pull his trigger." And that is Harold Lauder. And then uh, his name is spelled out uh, in the paper. So that it ends with sort of this concept that Harold and Nadine are going to be drawn together, the two dark agents within Boulder. Uh, Flag is bringing them together. So that's what goes on with Nadine in this episode. So it's, uh, do we do we feel like we have a good sense of her in this episode? No. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, for I, me, it's my, for my biggest gripe and since the get-go with her, it's exactly what Mac was talking about, is that, you know, before it was just that, you introduce these things and then, you know, you you basically have like this weird Jeopardy sort of narrative where you get the answer and then you find out the, you know, you, you say the question and it's kind of like this weird sort of reverse, you know, pitch and throw or pitch and catch thing that, that I just, I, I don't think works for character and especially not Nadine. Like you've already confirmed that she's with Flag. You've already confirmed all these other things. And then I, I just, she's one of the more complex characters in this story and I feel like she's being like short thrifted. Like you start well, this episode and, Mike, and you think that you, this is going to be her episode and it's not really like, yeah, I was going to say, know? I, you know, she's heavy in the early part of it. Yeah. And, and then, then you skip over it and it just, she's back at the end. Yeah. 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 And I think that's the, that's the, the issue is, and we mentioned this last episode where they're showing all these poignant parts of the book that we do care about, 
but they're not showing any of the lead up to those yes, sequences. Exactly. So there's yeah. no, they don't earn it. And I don't mm-hmm. care. I understand they're doing flashbacks, but what I don't need to see are five flashbacks in episodes later that make me care about something that happened in episode two that I forgot yep. about already because there's been so much stuff been thrown at me every single episode. So yeah. I just think it's one thing if it's like lost where it's like, okay, we're going to follow Nadine this whole episode and she's going to make a decision at the end of that episode. And the flashbacks that we're going to show of her not of other people, but of her in this episode, inform her decision at the end of this episode. That's a tight episode, and that's that flashbacks being worked in a way that's not just to tell more story out of order. And I feel like that is the problem. If the episodes were more focused where it was like, we're showing these flashbacks because it informs the future stuff, that's one thing. But really, it's not doing that. Not on all cases. I think in some cases, maybe. But it's just, it feels too frantic, too frenetic. Yeah, we just this is where you can the episode order you wish it was a little bit longer, you know, because you yeah. they literally don't have space to spend that much time with every character. And I think uh but if they, you know, had three or four more episodes, they might have been able to do it that way. Yeah. Uh Justo, what were you going to say? Well, Mac to Max's point, the first episode, really the only flashback in terms of going back and forth is from Harold's point yep. of view. Yep. And that, I mean, that's there, we that obviously works. we see the before time with Stu and um Franny, but we're not going Back to their, to the present of Boulder, you know, and whereas this episode, what there are, what we got Nadine having a literal flashback sequence, coupled with Larry, with Nick, Nick. and and with, and um, with Stu, and, and Stu, Glenn, yeah, with Glenn, and it's just it's it's way too it's like four times too much. Yeah. So. Um, uh, let's so yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what goes on with Stu in this episode. It begins with him teaching Larry how to hunt, which is actually a detail I think is fun. Um, I, one thing that I always struggled with in the original miniseries is that Larry just immediately is like like fits in at Boulder, and he's like yeah. you know like he's just he's a happier, nicer person there. Um, I like that they're kind of showing that Larry you know still feels awkward, and this is very different from the world that he knew. So this this little scene of Stu teaching Larry how to shoot you know and take down a deer or something like that to me is an interesting scene. Um, And we basically, uh, that's when this luxury sports car flies in blasting Billy ocean and, uh, (laughs) and a man who is very bloody falls out and says that he uh, is delivering a message from Las Vegas, and we see a little Las Vegas keychain in the car. Uh, everyone in Las Vegas only drives uh, very flamboyant cars, and I love it. Uh, so I was—I I thought it, the last time I saw this car was in like 1996. Is the Rock? <laughs> like, I swear to God, like. <laughs> I don't know if they just have, you know, you went to like a vintage car dealership, but um, yeah, it felt like, <laughs> it was like we... circling back to like the fucking vintage time or something. <laughs> and then we uh, later we see Franny uh, with a doctor who's checking on her baby. Uh, we learn that well, we know that there is a doctor there. We learn that a vet tech is going to be helping her with the birth because beggars can't be choosers. And then we flash back uh, to Franny and Harold when they meet Stu on the road. So basically Franny and Harold, uh, uh, Harold's taking a piss. That's the only time he puts his gun down. So Stu approaches him then. Catch him off guard a little bit. Harold is instantly distrustful. Na- uh, Franny is like, yeah, this guy's kind of cute. Um, kind of looks like the guy from a Disturbing the Behavior. She, she, she says say that. that to him. She doesn't say that. <laughs> she does say that in the episode. She said, that's the guy from Disturbing Behavior. <laughs> it's like, whoa, is Nick Stahl behind you? <laughs> 
Um, and then, so basically we meet them. They separate. They choose not to go together, mainly because of Harold. So then we catch up later with Stu on the road. He meets Kojak. He meets Glenn Bateman, uh, played by the great Greg Kinnear. Um, not Ray Walston, but... Uh, nope. And then they... <laughs> <laughs> Please don't get confused. Ray Walsh would be like 105 now or something <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> uh, and then basically we get some scenes of Stu and Glenn hanging out. Uh, they're eating like kings. They're smoking a little weed. We learn a little bit about Stu's backstory. His wife was killed by a drunk driver. They never got around to having kids. Same with Glenn. He never had kids. Never never uh, saw the point of the little fuckers, which, um, hey, I relate. Um, and so, yeah. And then when we then basically when we spend some time, more time with Stu back in Boulder, uh, the guy who came from Vegas, uh, is, you know, everybody's gathered around him and they're sort of understanding what this threat is. And this is where it gets a little crazy too, because they're trying to cram a lot of stuff into these modern scenes in Boulder. We not only have the threat of this crucified man who says he's here to deliver a message from this, from Las Vegas, but also in the midst of all that, there's a big argument about, uh, Nick, Stu, Glenn, um, Franny and uh, oh god, who's the fifth one? Why am I blanking? Mother Abigail. No, I'm just... <laughs> you said well, Nick, Fran, Stu, Glenn, Glenn, Larry. Oh, and Larry, I'm dumb. Yeah. So the five of them basically reckoning with the idea that they are the leaders of this community, and they're like, well, we should have an election. And I actually like a little bit of this scene because it shows that they all just don't instantly think Mother Abigail is sent from mm-hmm. God, uh, which is an implication, I think, in the 94 miniseries and something I think, you know, is explored in the book. But I don't know. The the concept of what people think about Mother Abigail is, is to me, um, very interesting. So I like that Glenn is basically like, this doesn't mean, just because she's done she's been able to invade our dreams doesn't mean she's you know connected to god and she is you know this is god's will and everything and so we kind of uh reckon with those questions which i like but again it happens in the midst of all of this chaos and uh i wish we'd spent a little bit more time with it uh, mother abigail enters she uh sits with the man from las vegas he tells her he dreamt of her but that uh you know basically i kind of like just these little lines um where he says uh, you know it's kind of like speaks to flag's arrival in las vegas um he says i flag showed up when we were all still shell-shocked he pulled us Mm -hmm. out of chaos he promised to put us on top for once uh and then he says then they started bringing in the slaves uh, which is sort of a big bomb to drop to not really elaborate yeah. on that. Um, so basically, this concept of slaves is what made him want to leave. But they caught him when he was leaving, crucified him, and uh, yeah. And then I guess he hopped in a sports car and <laughs> drove Yeah, I was going to say, how did he get out of there? How did he get out of there? Uh, Justo, what were you going to say? Well, I mean, he was playing this, of course, and this will pay off on the episode, I promise. Even though you can't hear it. <laughs> Ooh, trash man enters <laughs> Vegas. No. no, but I want to say this. Is I want to say any, this. I yeah, can't yeah. remember exactly how this goes in the novel, but again, I don't understand what Flag's plan is. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to warn these people about what they're up to at all? I know. Uh, yeah, why, why I was thinking about that while that watching coming. this. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, the, well, because the, the, the idea in the book is you know, and, uh, and we can spoil this because people have read it. The idea is that he wanted to get the nuclear warheads so that he can ship it over to to Boulder, right? I mean, well, not, ship, they, they even well, send not ship it, spies but shoot over, over in the in the book. I know, yeah. But like, he's just letting people come over here deliberately, letting them come over here 
to so that he could send this relay message. what's going on in Las Vegas. Yeah. Well, I just tell them, oh, by the way, I'm going to get you. here's another confusing thing. Now, is that the ego, maybe? Maybe that's the fault of Flag because he's well, not, yeah. like you said, some omniscient god, and his yeah, ego it, may be getting to him. But it's also confusing because Flag is visiting everybody in their dreams. Why do you have to send a physical person to tell them the same <laughs> thing you're telling them in everybody's dreams? Well, I think because he wants them to see the blood, the crucifixion, what they're doing to people. I think the reasoning is because these people essentially rejected him. And he is basically saying, I am the king's shit. I'm going to I'm gonna crush anyone who doesn't get on board with me. I think Which what is he something wants, that the devil wouldn't do. Yeah, and he wants... Works, yeah, he wants world domination. But and, doesn't, this uh, seem, doesn't this seem a little early? I mean, it, I, obviously it's not given where we are in the narrative, but th- again, this kind of proves the point of why the structure and format doesn't work because we're basically seeing a bruised ego to a person that we're literally just starting to know. Like, we, we don't really even know... We haven't even seen Vegas, first off. Second off, we don't. we've only seen Flag... Uh, at this point really twice because we saw him at the end of the last episode and then in this one and all of a sudden we're supposed to be like well now he's bruised because people are turning on him wait what like that's well I don't know if he's bruised when I say that I just mean people have made a decision if they went to Boulder they've rejected him because he offered them to come to Vegas so I don't even think it's like a bruised thing I think it's just basically like okay you made your choice and um, I'm building my community here this is how I'm going to run things and I'm going to destroy anyone who doesn't go with me I mean I, I get I get the purpose that Ferrari guy serves in this. Like, you know, it's an omen. Ferrari to, guy. You know, it's a nice little <laughs> teaser trailer to what we're going to be able to see in Vegas. It kind of teases this idea, this ominous place and whatnot. But yeah, I think when you break it down logically, it is kind of like, I, I don't know. It's just trying to do a lot. You know, it's trying to be a Trojan horse for a lot of uh, emotions and uh, narrative details. And I just don't know if it works really well. And also like, like what you were saying, Randall, like there's so much going on in that scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, first off, again, I, I stress the point of why I, you know, we have two different hospital settings in this in this episode alone. And granted, that's not a, that shouldn't be a gripe because, you know, look, stories take place in redundant places sometimes. But when you've got, you know, such an economy of a world here, you have dedicated time to a hospital with with nick and tom and then you also have dedicated time to franny in a hospital about a separate section of the narrative but then you also are still in the hospital talking about something else that also is incredibly important to the story with all the different types of characters it just feels very like um like muddled in a way like there's just so much going on and so much crossover at the same time that again i'm just trying to think of passerbys like this is what i wrote in my review like if you're not a constant reader you're going to be incredibly confused but even if you were even if you did just go in there and just trying to piece it together i don't know even as a constant reader i'm still kind of like all right i gotta i gotta get this down i feel like i need the fucking bulletin board from the wire to like really understand (laughs) all this and it doesn't have to be like this it just it really doesn't like i I don't know sorry well we we have to have that franny scene because it ends with her ominously saying do you think that this will pass down to to the 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 newborns yeah yeah and then all of a sudden it's another big idea it's it's a critical thing that's what i'm saying it's 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 a critical take it's like we're gonna introduce this for a second don't forget this moment Mm -hmm. and then we move on to the guy being brought in explain uh jess and that it's, it's and who Jess is, and that it's not not Stews, Stews, who you would probably uh, think it was. But yeah, then I mean, this Stu is what's doesn't think that there's just so, so much, there's so much yeah. information and like context and and like seeds that need to be planted. All these things need to happen, and this is where you can really see like the condensed quality of 
uh, of the narrative and how that really does impact things. Uh, speaking of condensed, let's talk about Nick. Uh, so Nick Andrews, we've only seen him once so far uh, where, you know, and we don't, we don't know much about him at all. We just know that he is basically Mother Abigail's right hand. Um, and this episode does a lot to kind of situate uh, Nick's place in Boulder, but it doesn't do much to uh, get get us to know him as a person. One of my favorite backs, I mean, maybe my favorite backstory in the entire book, and is Nick's is the the yeah. the story where he, I mean, basically he goes to Shoyo, Arkansas. He's attacked by a guy on the road. Spends time in. Um, uh, basically bonding with the sh local sheriff and his wife, uh, and they're all getting sick. And then basically he's he's becomes the deputy of this town because everyone else is gone, and he's trying to care for the prisoners and everything, and he's failing. And and but basically you're seeing this guy who is deaf and can't speak, and he's basically had to become the caretaker of this very small town that is dying all around him. And it's one of the most affecting um, backstories I think in the whole book. And so it, totally I was is. really really disappointed when it basically was excised from from this uh, well, adaptation. That makes Randall, no sense why you excise it. Yeah. Three, yeah. three more hours. Yeah. I guess that's, like, that's my What are they going to do is, on the show? I don't know what the show is. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you gonna, how are you going to fill all this time? Oh, my, my question, guys. My question Matt, go ahead. Is, sorry, I, I just didn't know if you guys can hear me for a second there. Uh, a lot of people, I think, that when I say stuff like this, like, like well, they cut this. They cut this. They're, they they've been saying, well, how do you know? Like, what, well, how do you know they don't show that in future episodes? And I'm like, well, I I know a couple of people have seen the first six apps, you know, like, and if they haven't shown it by then, that you know, are we gonna finally see Nick hanging out with people, or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, uh, the, the, and the thing the, the is, way that they wrap this up, though, I haven't seen the next three, but you can just tell that 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 story's done. Yeah, like it's not like he right, became the right. sheriff and then. Because the guy beat him up. It's Roy in the book. I don't think they even mm -hmm. give him a name in, right. the, in the series. Oh, it's wait, Ray, Ray, not Ray. Ray. I think yeah. I said Roy earlier. He's just he dies in the hospital. That's a wrap. Yeah. He, of course, he runs into. Oh my god! It's it so does. Much. It runs into Tom in the hospital. But by comparison, it feels <laughs> like we get a full episode's worth of Nick Andros in the original miniseries by comparison to this. Yeah. Like, it I, like I, it. I, it's, it's wild how much those scenes really do count, even though a lot of it does kind of, you know, I, I love those scenes, but a lot of it does kind of come off like um, we're watching like a 1940s, like Mr. Ed <laughs> or something like that. Like the set is kind of not great, but um, yeah, one but of the things I love, but, but you really do get loss. a sense of place and you get a certain purpose. Yeah. You get a sense of loss that you're talking about before. And it, what, by hanging out with Nick in those scenes, not only in the book, but also in the miniseries, especially, you really do get a sense of just the world gone. You know, like this 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 era that has moved on, and this new one that has this new dawn arising of this like idea that you are on your own, and yeah. anything that you need, whether it's you know doctors or hamburgers down the road at the gas station, that trip, even just the you know King brilliantly uses that to show the breakdown of society where yep. he's able to go down there, he's able to get his hamburgers, and then one night, you're not able to get anymore because now they're sick. And like, it's little details like that that really show you the impact of the world at large, and we are not yeah. getting that at all in this series. And that's well, a problem. And, like, And Mike, I problem. agree. Like, Nick is essentially wakes up in the hospital, and it's very 28 days later where like, no, there's no nurses or doctors there anymore yeah. and just dying patients. But the problem is, like, you don't see Nick go out and really see that and experience mm -hmm. it. Like for all mm -hmm. he knows, they're just on a break or something. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and then, yeah. So basically we, 
we catch up with Nick. He, like, so his backstory, what we do get is we get Nick going into a bar. Uh, he, he basically makes uh, Ray spill his beer. Uh, Ray is yelling at him, but Nick can't hear him. And then he fights him, beats the shit out of him. He's got the ring on his finger. So there are these aspects from the book that are there. When That's when Nick has his dream with Flag. Flag says, be my right hand. Um, and we learn a little bit about Nick's past. Uh, you know, Flag basically says he was the son of an immigrant um, who basically his mother, like, smuggled him into the U.S. And uh, now he basically is a guy who does day work. He walks around and he's, you know, broke and he's doesn't, he can't hear, he can't speak. And, um, um, and this is his lot and flag is basically promising him. Like you said, Justin, I think it was a really, really good point that he goes after vulnerable people and people who are susceptible because they have been disenfranchised in some way, or they're just rebellious. And, uh, Nick is rebellious in a lot of ways. And I wish we saw that a little bit more, but he, but basically he rejects him because he doesn't, you know, want to worship this this um you know this fake god or whatever and uh and he also doesn't believe him when he says that he can give him his voice back and give him all these things i mean that's like the the guy from vegas uh the ferrari guy who shows up that was the thing he says he can put us on top again i think that's really key here and Mm -hmm. nick is somebody who has been on bottom his whole life and but he still rejects that because he senses the you know the fact that flag is probably full of it and don't you know, don't believe these guys when they make promises like that to you. Uh, he wakes up in the hospital. His eye is all fucked up. So basically his only connection to the world is this one eye. And he's the only other person in the hospital is Ray, who now has tube neck. And like, I, the thing is, this disease must set in so quickly. Because like, how long was he sleeping? And then when he wakes up, like, Ray's already, you know, on death's door well, with his tube neck and everything. Yeah. Well, this is like an area where I actually would have liked to have dead bodies being littered everywhere. Like, you know, they had him on the yeah. boardwalk eating ice cream and you know holding balloons but like this you you would think like out of all the places in the world like this is where you would actually have like a shitload of rotting corpses yep i I agree it's the fucking hospital because even when larry's running through the hospital in the second episode Mm -hmm. the hospital hallways are packed yeah yeah of course i shouldn't say that new york versus shoya shoyo arkansas yeah probably not as packed yeah but the the fucking bar that nick is at is packed as fuck (laughs) it's not like if there was like five people in there it's like ringweaver sense but like it's just i was gonna say these people are defying lockdown um so so yeah so basically then he has another dream after he takes care of ray uh, because he basically chooses to i mentioned this earlier but he takes a towel he's like cleaning up mucus covered ray it's really gross but he's helping him out yeah jesus i like that yeah he's i think it's a good moment that really does show like why he's not going to fall for flags bullshit is he's somebody who doesn't need to be on top he's somebody who wants to help people and uh we and i do think we learn that in an effective way but then next time we see nick it's a dream within a flashback where he is dreaming about mother abigail (laughs) he is uh basically visiting her in hemingford home and here he can speak he can speak um and I can talk and uh and basically she we get we learn a little bit more about her he asks you know who she is and she says I'm an old woman who the lord has chosen to talk to it would not have been my choice but no one asked me very king line there and then he says I don't believe in god she says that's all right god believes in you and he's got a job for you he wants you to be my voice uh and I think they play that up more so here this idea of him being the right hand to mother abigail and being this voice for her I I don't remember that being as explicit in the book I I know that she has like a strong connection to nick uh, more so than a lot of the other people in the story, but they kind of play that up here. And she basically describes the future as a blank page and it needs to be rewritten, but everybody's got to get together. So they've all got to go to Hemingford home. 
M-O-O-N. That spells Hemingford home. Fun little nod to what Nick's about to experience. And yeah, he wakes up and Tom Cullen is there. And he says that Mother Abigail directed him uh, to find Nick at this hospital. So a lot of condensed narrative here because in the book we meet Tom, you know, Nick basically is on the road on his bike, comes into this uh, small town called May, Oklahoma, and that's where he meets uh, Tom. But here Tom finds him. And Tom here is uh, basically we kind of learn about what is going on with his mental deficiencies, that he was basically has hurt his skull when he was a child, and then also fell off his grandma's roof years after that. So he, and then he has this speech that he's prepared for when he meets new people to tell them that he, (laughs) that he uh, doesn't have um, basically social grace and to excuse him if he's awkward and he doesn't know how to read social cues, he says, but that he's a good hard worker and he can do uh, menial labor and things of that nature. So, um, foreshadowing. Yeah, so a bit of foreshadowing. So basically, this is how they hook up. And then, uh, so we've got <laughs> <laughs> not like that. Um, uh, episode five. Yeah, right. yeah, so basically, that is how Nick and Tommy, but basically, yeah, we, we've seen. Uh, Nick's entire story condensed like so, so, so much. And, you know, when I interviewed uh, Benjamin Cavell, the showrunner, I asked him if there were any storylines that he wished he could have kept that they that they weren't able to. And he was pretty adamant. I think I think they're really I think even times when that they would have wanted to include something, I think they're just really doubling down on this is exactly the show they wanted to make, which, hey, good for them. But, yeah, I I expected him to say I wanted to explore Nick's backstory and he didn't say that. So, yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's that's the one. One of the things they're you're right they are hammering down on this idea is like this is the original concept this is the original vision we had um you know on the press tour they said that on the recent episode that you can listen to now like they said it, it, it's it's strange because like they literally say like we could have had more than 10 episodes you know we could have had three seasons we mm-hmm. have, and i'm like why Jeez. like why didn't you take it like and i think one of the reasons why also he said it's like really you know it's obviously harder to get contracts longer for some of these bigger stars and and whatnot but like I don't know. I think you could so probably what? get a three season run here with with some oh, of these people. Oh, absolutely! Like yeah. and, and and what you're saying before, it's these little moments, and it, it hurts. And the reason why I keep hammering on this uh, point in these episodes is that like the stuff that we do get when you have patience and you have some sort of um, time to sit there, they're really good, and it makes me really sad to know that like if you just had the same talent here and you had the same brainchild and you had this all of this. But longer and you know you'd get I just think you'd have a really good fucking product here like those moments with like Larry and Stu the the moment with Larry and Stu where they are hunting it's like yeah give me like 10 minutes of that in an episode mm-hmm. you know that's what I'm talking about like you know I know we said in the first episode I don't know if we can do like you know multiple seasons of this I think you could though because you can find ways to take even just little nuggets of things in this book and find ways to tell stories around it and try to give us character make us like feel these things so that when these moments do hit, they really fucking hit because like looking ahead, you know, we're three episodes in, we get nine episodes. We've already heard a lot about the, you know, what's going on in Vegas. We already know a lot of the threads. Like I'm finding it harder and harder to believe that I'm really going to feel like emotional impact when some of the more really, you know, harrowing beats start happening because what are we going to see reasons for why we should be sad? Like, two episodes after that like i just it's just weird to me i don't, I don't know. yeah no yeah i agree i also think that there's like moment like that moment when uh larry's like showing joe the guitar and stuff mm-hmm. like there i just want more of that i just want yeah. more more i think what was so cool about 
the book and about the original miniseries, like once they all get to Boulder, it was just fun to see all these people that you already love meeting for the first time, and now they're all together. But you just don't get that. It's like it's like it's like giving you the the dessert before the meal, mm-hmm. like from episode one. And so like I don't really care about the meal. I've already had dessert. You know what I mean? Like even when they're showing that stuff, they're not giving and they're not giving you the meat of it. They're only giving you the dessert of each of those scenes too. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, I just wish there was like more it. like hanging. Like I liked. I actually liked the scenes with Glenn and Stu because totally. they actually are sitting – they're actually having conversations. Yeah, those like are some of my favorite scenes of the episode, yeah. Yeah. You know why that works though, for me at least? It's because we haven't met Glenn yet. Yeah. yeah. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. But then, of course, two seconds later, Glenn's fine in Boulder. <laughs> yeah. So, I again, know. it's kind of I runs know, to I that agree, problem. Yeah. There's, you can't pay anything off if there's no buildup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's no buildup with the flashbacks. Yeah, so – Um, Our final character that we get a little bit of in this episode, but not much, is Harold Lauder. Um, We get uh, in the flashback with him and Franny when they meet Stu on the road. I think we get some good character stuff there from him. Uh, Basically, his immediate distrust of Stu, which I do like is um, I have it later in my uh, dreamscape section. But the way he sort of criticizes uh, Stu's looks, like talks about how hunky he is. um, It kind of shows you that, yeah, if they had met somebody else on the road who maybe wasn't that attractive. Harold might have been a li- bit more open to linking up with them, but I think he's so protective of Franny and doesn't want any hot guys around her that he is not going to allow that. Um, so I do like that aspect of it. I think we do, you know, get a little bit more sense of, of what it was like on the road for him and Franny. And so, yeah, uh, and then we meet up with him a little bit later in the episode um, to, well, we see him and Teddy Wise, that kind of crack and wise, uh, helping set up the school. Joe is still afraid of him. And then also the episode ends with Harold, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, choice just because we didn't spend much time with him in the episode, but he basically, him and Teddy Wyzak are are uh, putting the body of the man from Vegas, uh, Ferrari man, in a big mass grave, and he's the first body that wasn't, you know, killed from the virus that they've dealt with, and I thought that was, a, it was an interesting choice, but I also kind of liked it, just that idea of like, okay, they're reckoning with new death because there is you know they've spent so much time with old death uh, all these like cleaning up all these rotted dead bodies that the concept of a new dead body is still a very striking thing for them because you know it's the whole cordwood thing it's like they don't see these bodies as people because uh, there's so many of them and they have to clean them up so the idea of like this human being who shows up and he was killed is uh you know still it shows that death still hurts them and and strikes them and it instills fear in them so i like those aspects of it and then the episode ends with basically uh you know harold making kind of an ominous comment about how there's going to be a lot more to come a lot more death to come yeah aren't i love you that teddy, aren't you teddy Wyzik in that moment going yes what huh? yeah, what do you mean by yeah. That? exactly why are you saying that what do you do you think something's going to happen like it's that that was weird i was like why would you say that out loud or why don't you wait till like teddy walks away yeah but mac that? like this is this strange. is a guy this is a guy that this is coming from someone who's a, who, you know, a smoker who won't even light a cigarette after throwing the garbage out. This guy like sits there and fucking puffs away and holds a cigarette to his mouth after throwing bodies in like a dish. He's an idiot. <laughs> He's an yeah, idiot. But the guy, like, the guy was, the guy died of, of um, possession. He didn't die of the virus. So yeah. I think he feels he's yeah. safe to die of possession. To light up. <laughs> that <laughs> is true. But even then I, again, like I, I won't even, I, I can't even eat my dinner if I haven't washed my hands, even though I have done nothing that day, I can't even imagine like, holding dead bodies next to this 
after, especially after the pandemic, I don't know. Maybe everyone just is like, fuck it. We what about, survived. What about after you take like a, ma- a massive shit? <laughs> yeah, no. Got to wash my hands. Well, I imagine oh, after. What did everybody what? really, what did everybody think about the possession? Uh, it was very, uh, I, me- I mentioned this earlier about the Ouija board stuff, but it was very conjuring, uh, very conjuring universe kind of stuff, which yeah. isn't necessarily bad, but it's, it's kind of like slick. You know, it's that kind of, uh. Uh, contorted body, like exorcism movie kind of thing. I've um, seen scarier scenes qu- of that, in, like question. supernatural episodes. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. I've Say seen that again. Se- I've seen scarier scenes depicting these exact scenarios in like supernatural episodes. I just felt it was so flat. Yeah, like but, did but not here, feel but, anything with that. Here's scene. another question for that though: If Flag can possess people, e- even in Boulder, and to the point where like he can kill them. Whoa! I, I, yeah. Why is he just doing that with everybody? Well, I like, think he, he he actually had like his uh, a physical presence with flag, and he gave himself to flag. Right, right. That, yeah, that's at that true. point, that's you're kind true. of sold your soul, maybe. Yeah, it's kind of like he put that's a little true. bomb inside the guy, and then he was able to sort of blow it up when he needed to. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that makes sense. That's foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, maybe so, yeah. like Thanos. Where no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's like there's like nowhere to go. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe he's, he's like just Thanos. like Thanos. Hey, he does have the Infinity Stone around their necks. He does. That's what, you know, it's one of them. So I guess my last, one thing I thought was interesting, this episode ends with Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit. Great song. And uh, I just, classic. I was kind of, (laughs) Mac does not like it. He just put a gun to his head. I love the song. It's just one, next to Gimme Shelter, it's one of the most overused songs in film (laughs) history. Sure. I like its use in the game. they pulled it out and used it for this one. David Fincher's best movie. Um, well, I will say well, they were, were going to use. Is she really going out with him? Which I thought was <laughs> way too on the nose. Like, come oh, on. oh, that was my next thing, Randall. Was the music? The use well, of music we'll in this. Let's save that for <laughs> Nightmares, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Dreamscapes. Okay, okay, uh, okay. But I will say, I, I liked. I will say, I like the use of this song in this episode because I think the first line actually says a lot. Because I'm, I'm just sitting here, and I've mentioned this on previous episodes. But what I really want to explore with this series is the question of what drives people to Vegas, what drives people to um, to Boulder. Uh, the, the general concept of what good and evil, how that is depicted in this world. Um, and the first line of the song, they talk about making a choice between a pill that makes you big and a pill that mm-hmm. makes you small. And I actually thought that was an interesting choice lyrically, because I think, you know, that's what flag promises you a pill that makes you big uh makes you you know uh, there you can be a god like you have to worship him but you can be uh you can basically be whatever you want to be and he promises that he'll elevate you and he'll fix you and he'll give you all these things uh boulder meanwhile a pill that makes you small it's this general concept of like you will be part of a community you will be an individual among many whereas i think flag promises more like you will be the individual you will be the king in vegas alongside me uh harold even says at the end of the first episode he goes in vegas i'd be a prince you know and it's the general concept of, of promising people this um you know this uh this deification if you go to he promises you that whereas in boulder mother abigail makes no such promise it's more so just kind of like come here be part of a community and we can rebuild and that so i don't know so i guess that that lyric in that song to me resonated in this context I agree 100%. Uh, but same thing with uh, what went on with uh, Seagros last week. Uh, we've used that thematically in The Matrix. Like, it's literally one of the first pop culture references in that movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's all about pills. <laughs> so yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, so it's, it's, the it's, in, it's the Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Illusion, yeah. yeah. But I, I actually <laughs> really love that read. And I didn't really, I just figured it was like, yeah, you know, um, 
creepy song and the yeah. end the, you know they use it in the credits all the time but it, it is it, uh, you know there's a lot of subtle cues there not so subtle maybe i don't yeah. know but i like that um because there has been a lot of musical the musical cues have actually really been pretty great i feel like for the most part i mean there's some well, we'll talk yeah, about that. Yeah, that Weezer cue is awesome. Oh, yeah, episode. well, not the Weezer cue, <laughs> but I do love the black. Well, I stand yeah. by the to Weezer cue. Uh, to be fair, uh, in, in right. episode two, which I wasn't on, but you know, Sigaros doesn't in their in their lyrics they don't use Icelandic. It's called Hopelandic. It's kind of just like gibberish. But the Hopelandic does translate to Larry loves Rita uh, over and over again. I was so I mean, I do think that that was kind of original because it doesn't really make a lot of sense in context in Vanilla Sky. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Larry loves. Why would why would that song be in Vanilla Sky? It's big not, missed opportunity not naming Tom Cruise Larry in that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, it could have been great. Larry, wake so, up. Speaking also, of Larry, let's move I'm on real. to our next section. Uh, a little section we call Mars and Scars. Saw you leaving. You bored with the sermon? <laughs> no, no, just not really my thing. Hmm. Can I give you a piece of friendly advice? Sure. Now, it's one thing to come into town thinking you're too good for the people who live here. I don't know why you'd say that. I, I but, wouldn't. But being too good for God, that's another thing entirely. Welcome to Mars and Scars. This is the section of the podcast where we talk about James Marsden and Alexander Skarsgård, the stars of the stand, or I'm sorry, the that's tan right. stand. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what we kind of learned or gleaned from these characters in this episode. Um who I guess like maybe we, we talked a little bit about Nadine, but I have to admit, you know, I'm trying to be, I don't know. I'm being easier on this show than perhaps I would on other things, but I can't get over how little I am drawn to Amber Heard's performance here. Um, I find yeah. her to be incredibly flat um, and mm. just, I don't know. And that's what my wife said too, when she watching it, she's like, why is she Nadine? Like that doesn't make any sense it's just like a role that does not suit her and she's not bringing much to it at all like um and so i don't know that's where i'm struggling the most i think with this series as a whole is because nadine's such a pivotal character and we were kind of stuck with this actor who you know she's great i think in aquaman or whatever like you know let her do those roles i don't need always said how great she was in aquaman (laughs) you always you won't stop i still not seen aquaman Aquaman, even though i promised that i would um and give it five noses like on the podcast like three years ago but um (laughs) but (laughs) but yeah so um, i I love her in mandy lane i mean she's got some really great early performances but like i I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that like you're just not given enough time for this character i mean you're given just like little bits and pieces and it's just not enough some people can work wonders in small moments you know there's no small roles mike yeah but which scene would you be able to work wonders in like the one where she's being soundtracked by like a shitty like (laughs) pop song hey hey, that's for my uh, nightmares But like, or or is it when she has three seconds like shivering in the cold on the highway, or is it when she's a kid? I mean, there's just not enough. Like, Mike, no I gotta get back to Nick's flashback within the flashback, and I gotta <laughs> yeah. jump to Franny getting her baby inspected. Oh God, damn it! So yeah, I think I think the hard thing about um, I think the one thing I do like about you know the, that they I think the thing about Amber Heard is that she's beautiful, right? So I kind of liked the scene where in the school when Teddy Wyzak sees her and he gets really horny for her. Uh, Love Wyzak. He's great. I mean, that's, he's that's what I'm saying, though, is you have an actor there <laughs> in Ian Bailey who, like, can take a tiny role and actually do something with it. Like, I feel like I know Teddy better than I know Nadine, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because there's... Well, think about Ian Bailey, Randall, yeah. if I may, and I'm being deadly serious. 
There's a reason why I still remember him, even though I stopped watching Dawson's Creek after like season two. I still remember him vividly. He was also in a massive ensemble on HBO's Band of Brothers. Yes, and I remember and him I more still than anyone. Remember him? Yeah, man. So he's just he's just he's a dude who presence. he exudes charisma and presence. He's like exactly the kind of actor you want in things because he can take a small role, make it his own, and make it exciting. And here we have Nadine, who has a big role. And I understand that the material is not really supporting a nuanced take. But the thing is, you can put a great actor in you know in an underwritten role and they can do something with it so I do I think that's where I struggle but yeah anyways I but I like the Wyzak moment because way he's like she may be the hottest woman on earth and this joke about oh you know in the old days I would have said I'd be the last guy on earth that I'd ever have a chance with you know and uh, but now I actually am one of the last men on earth so it's a funny bit also he's undercutting how attractive he is he's very good looking and I think him and uh, Amber Heard would make a great couple, but it's, it is. We wish funny. them all the best. But Amber is... Heard, not Nadine, not Teddy Wilson, <laughs> not Nadine, but the two actors. But I do think that uh, I do think that it's fun to see horniness, like in this world, like the mm, idea that yeah. people are getting back to the normal of having crushes on people and like wanting yeah. to date. It's also people. true to King's prose. I mean, it's all yeah. over it. Yeah, I mean, because uh, we. Yeah, because we don't get the Lucy Swan story here. Although I've never really enjoyed that that storyline nah. with her and Larry. Uh, but I do. But oh. I do like just the general idea of these new people have come together in this community, and of course, people are horny. So, uh, so I don't know. So as much as I'm not a big fan of of Amber Heard's performance here, uh, hey, she gave she gave my boy Ian Bailey a great moment, and I, for that I thank her. So, thank but you. those are the but to that point. You you kind of stressed exactly what we've been kind of saying all along. It's like this team can make those moments happen. They're just not given the time, mm-hmm. you know. Like I mean, imagine like imagine a bottle episode with Teddy. Like you know, I'd you love it. Get a lot, yeah. But yeah. we would probably have it, and that's another episode right there. Again, it's just. Well, think about this too, Mike. If this, the way that this series is so accelerated, if they did introduce Lucy, it would have been in this episode, mm-hmm. and that would have meant in episode two we see Larry in a relationship with Rita, and then briefly flirting with Nadine, and then thirty minutes in, now he's falling in love with Lucy. It's like you yeah. can't do it because of the way that how fast yeah. paced the series yeah. is. And also, like you said, Mike, like there are elements that are there that I, and I think that the team is perfectly capable of executing that because as we saw in the first episode, I thought they did that really well. Yeah. When it was oh, more yeah. focused, it was more about Harold and Franny and that was pretty much it. And then we got some stew, but I, I, I think that it, again, it, I don't know if they just didn't want to copy lost or something, but like, wouldn't it have been so much more interesting if you were with Nadine for a whole episode yes. and you and you really and, and and she was being a little affected and strange, but then at, at the at the end you finally realize like that she's been under his thumb yes. the whole time. It would be so much better. And I and yeah. I, was, I need to intercut that with Nick's entire introduction, yeah. flashbacks within flashbacks. And we then, need of Franny, course, Stu meeting Glenn, and there's and that Franny weird flashback in the hospital, and I mean, to uh, and I mean, Nick meeting. <laughs> it's just unbelievable how yeah, much they cram yeah. into. This is this is shorter than the first two episodes. I know. Yeah. It's insane. But I'll say this, Mike, just as a counterpoint, is I do agree with you that they do need more time. But the thing is, even if they had more time, I still don't I still don't think that Amber Heard would have been able to do something interesting with the role because she just isn't like she isn't doing it here. And I mean, even if we had a whole hour with her, it might be better for the character on paper, but I'm still not like, I can't imagine that she would suddenly blossom and make the character uh, compelling. And I think that's just so hard for me because I don't think Laura San Giacomo is like, perfect casting either but at least there was sort of I I do love her she's good but it's like 
but the thing is that that's that role is like the way she's described in the book too it's like she's this such a striking figure she's so singular you know uh like this black hair with silver streaks and like she's tall and she's like and she's older too she's supposed to be like 40 and um and I don't know. And she also is it's just this mysterious presence. And I just feel like the allure is missing. Uh, presence, in both presence is a big presence is a key word because when I think of her performance in the original Stan miniseries, I kind of liken it to, you know, the God. This is gonna sound so sexist, but whatever. Like the the, the alt girl growing up that you know you're never gonna date, but you're absolutely in love with. Yeah. Like un, like absolutely. There's a distance. There's a force barrier that you're never gonna you're never gonna crack crack and go through. But she's so fucking cool, and you just know it by looking at her. And that's what Nadine has in the 1994 miniseries here, or not here, but in the 1994 miniseries. But in here, I I, I, I never you, you don't know who she is. It's just right. it's just. It's just given. It's like show and tell again. Show and tell. Show and tell. This and just goes really back to my earliest criticism of, um, and and God bless. They were born this way, and that's wonderful. But CBS is just tr- hiring very attractive people. Yeah, yeah. Like they didn't even. It's, it's, it's literally just Amber Heard. Like they, she doesn't have any gray streaks. Like which is such a standout thing of the, with the Nadine character, at least on page. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't need people to be so beholden. But give me some type of a character. Yeah. As opposed to just, oh, look at this damaged, unbelievably beautiful. Well, yeah, I think about like, I think like, about like, um, <laughs> look, this wouldn't be a stand episode if I didn't bring us back to Albuquerque, God New damn Mexico. It, Mike. I got to go. I got to go there uh, because I got a good example. Think about those. Think, I mean, think, no, no, no. Think about those first times you see Christian Ritter in the in the second uh, season right you don't even really get to see her talk right she just kind of looks at jesse and then maybe says one or two things but you already have an idea of who she is and what her character is like and how she's going to like her attitude her her sort of demeanor and there's very little there and you could do that with nadine right now to your point actually mike i can cut you off and just say i think no joke now i'm seeing god i wish Kristen ritter had played oh i know yeah she'd be great yeah, but yeah. I think the issue with Amber Heard also is like at, at towards the end of this episode when Flag's talking to Nadine about you've got to kill these five people. Does anyone believe that Nadine, the Nadine we know through, through the first three episodes, is A, capable of doing that or B, would, would really even want to do that at all? Yeah. Well, like, that's I, the problem. Is that I, we haven't really, we just don't. Well, the key is Harold. We can more, see Harold doing it. Yeah. So he basically is like, you need to accelerate what he's already feeling. And that is something I think she can do. But I do agree, Mac, in just the sense that, like, we we have such little sense of her that when he does say that, it's kind of like, you know, what is special about this woman? You know, why did you pick oh, and, her to be your bride? Why are you picking her to be this uh, instrument in your plan? It just, yeah. yeah. And, and here's the thing, Randall, is like, at least in the, in the book... Um, on the journey, you know, there, there's the whole, there's the constant mention of like, of her, like having these visions of flag and the seduction. And all you get is this one instance where he's like seducing her. And yeah, maybe, oh, oh, you know, something was spelled out when she was a child. But if we had more of the seduction, then I would maybe buy that she just wants to get to Vegas and wants to see, you know what I mean? But I just, it's like, we're only seeing this once. Mm-hmm. And so we're supposed to just believe that and trust that this is like this has been going on for a long time. I know that she already has the rock, but like I don't know. It's just it's all checking boxes. They just don't they That's don't all show it you like, enough. It, yeah, they it's just, a lot. They're they're showing again. They're showing you the the end of it. Mm-hmm. 
They're not mm. showing you how he'd get there, and that is frustrating to me. Well, we'll have more to say about Nadine in future episodes, I'm sure. So let's pivot over to um, another new character we meet in this episode, who I think we all liked a lot more. Uh, Greg Kinnear as Glenn Bateman. Uh, Mike, as the Glenn head of this podcast, uh, yeah. you know, you I know that you base a lot of your philosophy and approaches to life on Ray Walston's uh, <laughs> performance in the 1994 miniseries. How do you feel about uh, Beatnik Glenn here? Okay, well... Yes. Uh, first off, um, it's not just Ray Walston. I do love his performance in the 1994 miniseries, but I only chose that because I couldn't think Awful of Justin. I, I couldn't honestly find <laughs> any other photo that would, you know, basically show that I was talking about Glenn. Um, all right. I love Glenn Bateman. I, I think he's he's I think he's a great character, pragmatic, and not only just. Um, you know, really great in being able to kind of wrestle with this post-apocalyptic world, but he's a really good source of exposition. And that's something that you need, especially in the structure and format that we have here. So like, obviously we get to see Greg Kinnear be his natural self when he's with Stu and they're talking about potato chips and not having kids. And, you know, he makes that great comment that I really love. That's like, well, you know, it's hard to believe anyone died other than, um, you know, the, the, captain trips or whatever which is something that's like definitely hit home mm -hmm, for sure yeah. um and i and i and i so i love those sorts of situations but later on when we see in the hospital when you know the writers are like oh god we gotta put all these <laughs> themes in this two Owen. minute scenes <laughs> Owen, Owen, take us you, you know you wrote sleeping beauties you know do your magic here um uh. you know glenn is a great character at that because when he's able to kind of wield his philosophical magic, we buy it. It doesn't yeah. feel, you know, shoehorned in like it does elsewhere. So, and, and, and also, honestly, Greg Kinnear, who uh, cut his teeth on the soup, That's he knows right. how to deliver a good monologue. So I, I'm, I'm all in on, on the Greg Kinnear train. I've had stock in him. Uh, I've had season tickets, to quote my man, uh, Bill Simmons, <laughs> uh, for a good 20 years with Greg Kinnear. Um, so I love him in this. I just, I absolutely, he's my, he's my favorite performance I've seen so far in this show, other than Odessa Young and Owen Teague. I think nice. I Mac, what were you going to say? Yeah, you know, I like, I like Greg Kinnear a lot. Um, I, I do think it was confusing how the why they chose to show certain scenes and that like you see him with Stu talking about how you know everything everything up and running is what got us here and let's try standing still and doing all this stuff that's like anti society and anti getting back to normal. But then you cut to the scene where he's basically saying, We need to have a committee where everybody votes for us <laughs> to be the you're like, Wait, didn't you just say you didn't want any of this stuff? Like it's, Yeah, that's, well, that's again, the lack of just, that's the lack of material between A and Z. Yep. Yeah. Once again the flashback is well, A. I know it. And now and now we're at Z and there's yeah. just no journey. That's a good yeah. point, Mac, because I think a lot of the it's turning on the electricity in Boulder that really triggers a lot of that form in the book, where he really right, starts right. to worry about why are we doing this all again? And uh yeah, so I I do agree that they're kind of putting this philosophy in his mouth before we're really, I mean, I, I understand what he's saying and I do think it's an important point here, but yeah, you're right in that we don't carry through with it too much. I do like that we see him sort of questioning the nature of everything, which I think is important when about mother yeah. Abigail, he's, he's especially, yeah. he's the first one to not to say, I, I refuse to, yeah, not that I refuse, but it's like, it's like, 
why do we do we really think she that this is the will of God? Are we really gonna go there right here? You know, but um, but yeah, I do. I I like Kinnear a lot. He's he's just so natural and he's so likable and um and yeah, and I like this fresh take on him. I mean, I think Ray Walston was great in the original, and it's definitely the version even like because that's not even he's younger in the in the book, so it actually is like more appropriate casting with Kinnear. But I always associate it with like Mike does with Glenn yeah. Bateman. Um, and so I don't know. I kind of like this version of him where he's he's indulging in beer and caviar, smoking weed. Like they're just having fun. And uh, and it's this version. Uh, it's the guy at the cocktail party that will just you know talk and talk and talk and talk. And uh, you kind of love listening to him because he's funny until you want to go to sleep. You know. So it's like, it's like his character and you've got mail. <laughs> <laughs> he's like talking about he's talking about flag. He's like flags a lone read. <laughs> <laughs> he was cast based on Stuck on You from what I read. Uh, love but, Stuck on You. Yeah, I think uh, it's a at cool, least him in that. I think it's a cool uh. take on Glenn, um, and it does provide sort of this analytical, this optimistic but analytical voice that I think is important in this world. And it does clash well with Stu's, you know, quieter and country boy and everything. So, and you know, that's obviously intentional from the book as well. Bringing these two together is sort of an inspired pairing. They bounce off each other well. And so I just think, um, you know, I think I was a little bit skeptical, like I was of a lot of the casting when they cast Kinnear, but I, he's proven to be one of the better uh, additions well, just, to this. I it's think. just shocking that we got that, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, they didn't have to sit there and, you know, listen to Steely Dan and fucking talk about the, you know, philosophies of the world, I, but they did it. And it was, so, so for me, that was shocking, especially in an episode where we have, you know, like 80 different other narrative threads that are going on at once. Well, yeah, I could have done a whole mm-hmm. episode of those two together. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. this is a running theme of this episode is that we could have done a whole episode on every character that we've talked about so yes. far. And it just so it just seems so strange to me that we already have the massive ensemble together two and a half episodes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just... Well, speaking of uh, people who could have a whole episode devoted to them that didn't, uh, we talked a lot about Nick already, but I guess, um, I mean, what do we think about Henry Zaga's performance here? He kind of comes across as... Um, God... <laughs> He's gonna make a great joke, but I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> he he comes across as almost like, a, it's almost a magical character as like Mother Abigail does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like almost as mysterious, if not more mysterious than Mother Abigail is. Before we dovetail into his flashback, well, I feel like it's they... hard to kind of really judge the performance, I guess, mm-hmm. because um, he's kind of guiding people around or kind of answering on behalf of Mother Abigail right now. I don't know. I I couldn't really gauge mm-hmm. the performance. Yeah, I think I think what maybe Josh Boone, because Josh Boone worked with him on the New Mutants as well, and I think maybe what he saw there that he thought uh, Henry could bring to Nick is uh, there is sort of a gentle quality about him. You know, I think that the thing about Nick is that there is something that's light about him. Like even though he is, uh, you know, somebody who is deaf, can't talk and has this sort of rugged lifestyle. Uh, but there is sort of this light within him that's there. And I think the thing about Henry Zaga is he does, uh, you know, part of it is he's tall, but he's got this like feather light frame and he's got this long hair and there is something that is almost delicate about him. And so I can see it temperament wise. I can see the casting choice, but yeah, it's tough because you're right, Justin, in that there's not 
he's kind of just moving from point A to point B to point C, especially in his flashback. Like, he's in the bar, he gets beat up. He's in the hospital, like, he goes and helps um, Ray. And then he meets Tom, and Tom sort of talks at him for a while. He meets Mother Abigail in the dream. She talks at him for a while. We're not, he's not, be, he's not very active in this episode. And when he shows up, and he's yeah. like, this man is from Vegas, you know? It's like, it's like, okay. It's like, you know, well, we're, most, we're just not yeah. getting a lot of, like, active character for him, like, which is what we get in the backstory where he actually, you know, tries to help help the people of this small town and ends up being the last survivor. Um, we get so yeah. much character from that. And, I, yeah, it's just tough. Like, I agree that it's hard to gauge the performance because he doesn't do a lot. He's kind of just talked at a lot and told that you are this, you are my voice, you are these things, you know? So... There, there is an unfair advantage that the book will always have, though, when it comes to the depiction of somebody who can't speak, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Yeah, you're in their is head. Is that we do get, yeah, you're in their head the entire time in the book, and you can't really convey that mm-hmm. on screen. I, I, I thought Rob Lowe does a really good job in doing that, though. Like, I, I mean... Well, that's because we get a lot more time with we him, too, do, right? But, but even, like, it, he just gets more action, you know? Like, yeah. in this, again, the... the like, I feel like we're beating a dead horse at this point, but with this structure and format... We're, it, it's just glimpses, you know, like, all right, yes, he's yes. at the bed. Like I, I use, I think in the first episode, well, I used like the 2001, a space odyssey uh, reference of like when he turns this way and he's at the table, he turns this way mm-hmm. and he's in the bed. Like that's literally how I feel, how the action is in this episode. Like, especially with Nick, like it's, he, what, what, I have like four images stuck in my head. One, he's, <laughs> he's sitting there, uh, you know, in the, the, he's at the bar, he's in the hospital, wakes up, he goes and you know gets the water and then he's talking to tom like that's it and i don't really even have any action really other than him patting water down like at least with rob Lowe, you see him interacting with people you have moments where he has to kind of solve problems like no one's really solving problems here like they already have answers they already know what they're supposed to do they're like it's weird i don't it's odd like with the exception honestly again i've only seen the first three episodes but with the exception of harold i feel like all these characters have a lot of moments, but there's no arc mm. yeah, these none. characters. Exactly, yeah. That's yeah, how it feels. That's the, that, that's the best that's, way I can put it. Yeah, that's my my major criticism. And I, like, I I don't mind Henry Zaga as I don't, I don't mind him as Nick. I think that he probably is perfectly fine. Again, we just don't we're just not seeing enough of him being that character. Like they're they're just jumping to the important things that we need to get to to understand like future stuff. But again, like you said, Justin, there's no arc. And I like because I really like the moment where he actually sits down for a second with Ray and actually starts taking care of him. And I actually kind of like to see in that brief moment, like Ray kind of resign himself to like, OK, like I'm actually going to let this guy take care of me because like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I it, was, it was like a brief moment. But again, it's brief and like there's not enough of that. Also, I want to I want to bring up really quickly that last I think last episode, I think we made a lot of jokes about the eye patch and stuff, but. He does get his eye put out in the book, doesn't he? Yeah. It's not yeah, put yeah, out. It's right. just basically damaged. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, it's... Uh, I just... Yeah, I just no, the eye was, patch is fine. Yeah. It's just... it's yeah. He just has... Like, it's like you said earlier. It's like, you know, Nick of Nazareth or whatever. There's just serious Jesus vibes coming off of him, which I think yeah. contributes to that magical concept that you were speaking about, Justin. Um, uh, so speaking of brief appearances, we meet Tom Cullen here, um, played by Bill Fagerbach. Is it Fagerbach or Fagerbach? I'm not sure. Well, that um, was from 1994. Yeah, yeah I know. Um, That's who played him in 94. Great yeah performance uh in that and then here we've got brad william henke uh who plays uh tom here and yeah def 
definitely a different vision of the character. He's kind of a farm boy in the book and um, and in uh, the 94 series here, he's sort of, um, I don't know, he wears a Dolly Parton shirt. It's an interesting well, choice. Can you re- refresh my memory on this? In the book, isn't <laughs> Tom born um, with his mental issues? I don't remember. I've Versus yeah. th- how in this, I think, because I think that there are worse people who have had issues with the depiction of Tom. And I wonder if they're trying to say that this person literally has... Um, brain damage. Yeah, which is why he's speaking a certain way. Yeah, I think it's implied that yeah, it's implied in this episode. Yeah, it's implied in this episode that he wasn't born with his um, with his mental deficiencies, but that it happened when he was a child. He was dropped on his head, things of that nature. Yeah. So, okay. so yeah, I think that's a way of that. I think that's a way of trying to get ahead of perhaps some of the blowback that this performance will probably receive. But um, <laughs> but yeah, well, it's already it's already started uh, yeah. for sure, especially. You know, in the deaf community, they've certainly been up in arms. Um, well, I'm talking about Tom. Yeah, but I, and I, I know, I know. But and it's I'm, begun I'm, with Nick. Yeah, and oh, it's, I, and I it's already begun. Nick, and I and I imagine following this episode, you know, it'll happen here. And and the thing is, in defense, like I, I think he does a pretty great job in this performance. Yeah. Like I really do. And I think, given you know, the you political t- Tom. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I, I really do think that you know Brad does a really good job as Tom here, and I think that he doesn't play it to stereotype he doesn't you know go all in like um you know they talk about in you know tropic thunder and stuff like that i I just think that it's actually a pretty like um nuanced performance yeah i actually really like the idea that he has that message which is something that's gonna be recurring um throughout the you know the the series without spoiling too much but that's like a big motif of him and i think that's you know he talked about that in interviews about how you know the two of them also they, they did a lot of research going into these roles and um you know, and I think that obviously Brad probably had the, you know, definitely had the harder art, like performance, I think, to, to do here. Um, sure. And I think there's a lot of nuance to it. I, I think it could have gone really bad. And I and I think and I was literally shocked. And I think and it was I think he's really charming. I, I actually really like his character. Like instantly I'm like I'm on board as like he's like a warm presence that mm-hmm. I well, he's also like. playing against type. The yeah. Actor. Yeah. Oh, totally. He's, been a lot of other, so he's usually he's, he's always usually an asshole. Just a big, heavy. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like he in in the office, he's the guy that like uh, ruins Pam's uh, mural. So I guess in hindsight, he's a he's a hero, <laughs> considering that Jim and Pam are just the worst. But um, <laughs> anyway, true. that's a joke. Um, um, but, no, that's a true yeah, joke. I mean, you know, we see him for all of like two minutes in this, but so far, I I I'm digging him as Tom. I mean, like that's a difficult character to tackle, like you guys said, without you know being. <laughs> incredibly offensive and sensitive so so far i think it's okay but you know again i mean only time will tell and obviously it's not really my place to yeah, say whether he's doing really a good place. job as that you know for well, the speaking, rate this is going i'm sure he'll already be in vegas for the first 20 minutes of the next episode <laughs> that's true <laughs> spoiler yeah, alert yeah, true. um so yeah um i guess the last person we could talk about here is mother abigail although i mean not much to say i don't think and you know, I think what's tough here is because we do. We this is probably the most time we spend with her because we actually see her interacting with um, with the characters sort of on a casual level. The line that struck me as kind of like weird because we haven't you know seen the interactions is when she's like Glenn Bateman, I love you, but you know, and I'm just kind of like, you love Glenn? Like, have you? This is the first time we've seen him together, you know. And it's this implication that um, there is this shared history that's between them, but it's. I don't know. I just don't buy but it. They don't yet. want to show us it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't buy also, it. Also, the other line that was that was interesting is when she's like, you know, talking about how she's the oldest woman that everybody's ever seen, and I'm like, 
Yeah, you look really good for yeah. Yeah. <laughs> being the oldest woman. Like, I just don't buy that either. Like, we can make I, fun I, of uh, Ruby D's like, makeup in the first one, or in the 94 yeah, version, but, they, but they at least there. she looked like she's 100 miles. Yeah, exactly. I think she, exactly. that's like a transformative performance for Ruby yeah. D. Whereas yeah. I feel like this is just Whoopi Goldberg with gray hair, yeah. Yeah. with white hair. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm actually, this is actually the most disappointed uh, perform most disappointing performance for me because a we're not getting anything. I mean, this is literally like the most we've seen of Mother Abigail this entire time, and when we get her, and it's like, I don't know. It's just like I don't, I don't, I don't feel like the the, the characters really know what to do with this character right now. Exactly. That's how yes. I feel. Is that is that they don't really know what to do with her, so they're kind of just she just kind of exists. You know, mm-hmm. they have her say her lines, but there's no stance taken on Mother Abigail. You know, well, you they're, you had a really good idea for her. And and I and I and I think a lot of it, and I keep thinking about it while watching these episodes. And your idea was basically kind of like what they were going to do with John Connor originally in the Terminator Salvation. Uh, McGee's or McGee was you know Terminator Salvation from '09, which is that he was literally just going to be a voice. Mm-hmm. And and then at the end, obviously, they would reveal John Connor finally. And I kind of almost wish they did that with Mother Abigail here. Yeah. Like, she was just a presence. Yeah. Or just, like, I wish they had gone more conceptual with the depiction of of this character. Like, distill the essence of what the character represents in the story and find a way to do it that doesn't rely on the old tropes, you know? Uh, Mm Because it is a character that just doesn't really fit into modern art or discourse. And so it's it's difficult with her. And so I just kind of feel like they're, you know, they're putting her there to move the plot along and to be this presence. But there's no reason real insight or stance taken uh like I'm, I'm just curious like at least in the 94 version like it you know as much as we criticize this a lot in our recap but it's basically you know mick garris very much films boulder like it is of this christian haven you oh, know 100%. and so and i've always felt like when i was a kid when i watched it that you know the that this woman did represent um she was a servant of god like the christian god and the the miniseries 94 miniseries very much supports that uh, that reading of it um whereas it is more complicated in the book and here it is more complicated too i'd say um but because uh, at least we have characters questioning her moral authority or her spiritual authority but at the same time i'm not sure what we're supposed to get from mother abigail because Whoopi doesn't really well, seem to be making big choices with the character she's just kind of delivering these lines what's up justin i, I just think there's a way it's like you said it's a rock and hard place you can't get rid of the mother abigail character yeah right because there'd be an issue with that but if you lean too much into the if you're, if you're too true to the original source material from 40 years ago you're going to encounter other issues. Mm-hmm. I think a, an easy solve would just been to have her act like a normal person yes. in <laughs> jeans, walking around Boulder, talking to people, hanging out. But now you still have her in like this, this elegant, like beautiful white frock or whatever. Yeah. And looking angelic. Yeah. So you're still hair kind too. of having to yeah. deal with that. And yeah, it's just, you just have to just make her almost one of the gang. But and almost like a well, why are we so drawn to this person? She just seems like everybody else because mm-hmm. she doesn't seem like everybody else, you know. Yeah, that's the problem. And something that they they go into more in the miniseries and in the book is like she doesn't she she knows like the the main five characters or whatever. But like even in the miniseries, they're like they talk to her about some of the dreams they had of her, and she's like she seems aloof of that. Like the the the, the dream version of her that's visiting these people is is actually like you know the higher being or whatever like she knows what what god tells her you know 
like of these people and so she knows like Stu and Nick and all these people are coming but but it's not actually her in some of those dream sequences talking to them and and again like you said just I think that's a great point and something that they said that they were going to do which was just make her a normal person like that works at this facility in Boulder but you already have her like quartered off into this one specific place where everybody's camping out outside of she has her mm-hmm. right hand man nick that like you have to see him in order to see her it's like it's very and her bouncer it's, it, it's like they're doing everything they said yeah. that they didn't want to do with the character so i'm really confused why they said that they weren't gonna make her like this magical character but really they're setting it up so that it is and I'm, i know that glenn questions it but and and you know again this is the first time we really see her in this episode so like we're being we're only <laughs> We're only talking about what we've seen, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm episodes, looking forward. They go into her I'm more in a, in a normal to way. Future episodes. I'm, I'm kind of holding my judgment on both Flag and Mother Abigail. I think, like, I mean, I'm going to have thoughts on it, but I'm kind of holding my final judgment on how they were approached in this uh, yeah. until it's all over, because you know, obviously, there's a lot more to come. Um, any other characters you guys want to discuss? Any other moments maybe that stood out, Justo? I, I just want to chime in, just because I was on the second episode, but you know. With Skarsgård as Randall Flagg, I know you, you don't want to lean into Jamie Sheridan territory. I understand that. But Randall, Randall Flagg, at least again on the written page, is like over the top. Mm-hmm. Yes. And is a lively, gregarious presence whom you could imagine being manipulated by. And my biggest fear with Skarsgård was that he would be like Eric on True Blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I and I am getting the, Eric yeah, Cruz blood Justin, vibes, yeah. like yeah. when he, when he cuts his hair in season two. Yeah, I'm like okay, well, now we all think he's high. Like, I think he is a little bit more over the top in this episode compared to the second one when he's dealing with Lloyd, but it's still too reserved for me. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. I need more. Again, I know it's a, we me. shouldn't always say that this has to be just like the book and that this these are two different things, but. I don't know. I, I just wish he was a little bit more fun. Mike, what did you say? I just want more menace. I yeah. mean, even with these moments, like, I mean, he's literally <laughs> saying what he's going to do, and I don't care. Like, you know, he pops up, and it's really an aesthetic thing for me. You know, like when he's getting these dreams, it's just more like, oh, the neon's kind of cool. Eh, I like the set design. Could care less about the performance, which and is that's such a, a problem, sad right, Mike? Thing. Oh, it's a total problem. Because you're saying that. That you don't think he's menacing enough. No, I'm saying not he's not fun enough. So it's like, well, what is he? Mm-hmm. I think he's, he's just there to be there. like, I'm, I'm Randall Flagg. He's a vessel. And it's kind <laughs> yeah. of like the same thing with, I, I almost look at like Whoopi Goldberg. Like she's literally just reading the lines that are on there. And, you know, I know the character from the pages. So I'm filling in the blanks there. And it almost makes you wonder, like, how much more effective would this have been if we almost had kind of like a leftover situation where, and I'm, I just keep thinking about Randall's idea. It's just like, you didn't see any of them. And you just had characters play as the ch- we just watched the chess pieces unfold, and I actually think it would probably be a little more effective. I think that you'd probably have a little bit more room for nuance. You'd have a little bit more room for subtlety for sure, and a lot of those unanswerable questions would go down to the fact that it would play into the mythology a little bit more. It'd lean on more on the performances for the people that are actually there doing the shit that's you know in the front lines and i I don't know i I think that there's a there's an adaptation there that that could really work that well there's like if you want to put like our producers caps um if this was a three season show you could wait to introduce mother abigail and Randall flag yeah yeah but also no i was just gonna say with the miniseries like you don't 
all you get is like the presence and like the idea and the talk of flag for that entire first episode, which is like, you know, 25% of the way through the miniseries. And at the very end of that episode, you see him walking and talking and, and even then you don't see his face really. And he just snaps his fingers and kills that deer and it's menacing as hell. And you're like, holy shit, because they're able to build the suspense to who this character is. But when when you just see him outright, like in 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 weird spurts and in dreams for the last three episodes, like again, I just don't think you know it's just not it's not scary. Like and I I felt different about the, the about his his performance in the second episode. I I like the weird dialogue that he had, and obviously you can't be Jamie Sheridan, so I'm like okay, well maybe he's gonna do this weird affected thing. But again, you don't really get to see him very much in this episode, except for him to yell through the possession guy, "I'm gonna blow your house down," which. That didn't seem very scary at all. Um, it's a very flat line, know. though. Yeah. I, I like that. I have why, she, why, like, uh, why Nadine would be extremely attracted to him. Well, if he's like, looked at him, he's hot. Exactly. I mean, so I, he sells that very well. Don't let's get me wrong. read what Jen said. Um, she was insistent on us reading this. Uh, you know, she, she told us on our thread. Um, she said that. I just want to know, note that uh, Flag is incredibly hot in this episode <laughs> um, she pointed so it out in the last episode don't worry yeah and she did so i mean look the sex appeal is there and you know i'm I, i'm not really i'd rather have a jamie sheridan cosplay than this right now i gotta be honest with you i, I just think like for me yeah. i don't want this like cardboard cutout just sitting there like i feel like it's kevin McAllister with like the michael jordan uh, cardboard <laughs> cutout in home alone it's just like, this guy fucking standing there like i don't care the only per- but here's my problem with also and maybe this is something we can discuss in cemetery i guess but like I'm not scared of anything in this sh- in this show. Like the only thing that scares me is Harold. Like Harold's the only villain that I actually feel and get so far where we're at right now. O- Owen Teague is it's unbelievable, killing it. And I was also very wary of of him being in this, but every scene he steals. Like yeah, he's in what, he's two really scenes good. of the second yeah. episode. Well, he's only yeah, in like two the scenes of this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great. So, so I, he's doing great. I think that's yeah, a good anyway. pivot for us to move into our next section, uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. This section, we talk about the things we loved, the things we didn't love. Uh, but I was going to say, Owen Teague is a good pivot here because one of my favorite parts of the episode, oddly, is in the flashback with um, with Franny and Stu and him. I, you know, it's and this is something I've, I might have pointed out in an earlier episode, but this is the first time I noticed it on my first watch was the, his gait as Harold, the way he t- way he walks. He does this sort of mm, bow legged, mm-hmm. like almost bow legged thing, and he's like mm-hmm. he's it's almost Torrance esque, like you know, crazy yes. Torrance, yeah. yeah. And uh, and it's it's clearly a really deliberate choice on his part as an actor, and that stuff can sometimes not really work because it can feel too affected. But I really like it here because it, it just feels very pointed and uh, very appropriate for the character so it's to me just a small acting choice that um i think is 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 like one of the bright spots of this episode i think so yeah uh mac that, did you have something yeah Uh-oh. the use of music in the show sometimes <laughs> like when we first meet like well not first meet but when we spend some real time with nadine that song that plays it's just like it's so bad well, uh, mac it's like, jordan it's like, what are we doing here? And, and I think that's my problem with, and I've always had this problem with television shows that use music that's like on the nose, like the lyrics and stuff. Yeah. It's just like, 
it 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 spoon feeds you stuff that like honestly you should be able to do in the episode without having a song tell you who, who this character is kind of thing you know I don't like know. like this is how I we mean, do it and like, this is how you play the game this is how you play a ouija board <laughs> <laughs> yeah Dustin. but like i just i don't like when they do stuff like that and that's why i you know and even though it's song played over the credits i don't like it because you know like it, it, it pretty much for the reason you said randall is like it's like spoon feeding you like the subtext of the of the episode. I just don't like that. It just feels lazy, and it's like, and if you're gonna do that, find a goddamn song. There's a billion songs out there that hasn't been also, used before. Like, well, also on. find a tone. Sammy brought yeah, up a really that's good what point both say. times, where yeah. you know she goes is like you know. Look, I know Crowded House and WG Snuffy S. Walden is like totally different, but they really did work. You know, like there was there was there's something that was in tandem in sync there. This series, and this is something that she's been hammering every episode we watch, is that it's like all over the place tonally because of like the music choices and like literally right after that that trip hop song, we get like the stylings of Mo- Mike Mogus again that are very similar to WG Snuffy yeah. Walden. Yes. And it's I like, wait a second. This episode like, specifically. Yeah. It's the like, score, what is going on? The score clashes with the pop music they're using. Yes. Um, and it's, I, I have a question yeah. about the pop oh, music. Oh, sure. Since we're, I, this, which I guess would be like, uh, you know, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I don't know. Most of these are going to be Nightmares. <laughs> um, what is the song that is playing when they, Dean's getting ready? Oh, that? okay. It's called... It sounds like Billie Eilish, but it's not Billie no, Eilish. No, it's called... It's I, I shazammed it. Uh, it's Ashlyn Malia. The song is called Desperate. Uh, I've never heard of, of this artist Now, look, before. I'm 40 years old, okay? <laughs> but I feel like I, I've, I'm familiar with all these other songs. Is, is this a popular artist, or is this somebody signed to, like, CBS Records? As somebody who covers this stuff for a living, I've never heard of this person. <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure I'm not that out of the loop. Okay. I mean, pro- I mean, got to be doing well if... if you know, if CBS is picking up your songs, but it's just, it's a song that sounds so out of place in this world. It's like mm-hmm. the beach house. It's like the cigarettes. Like, like there's no consistency in terms of the music. Cause then they'll use these, you know, Jefferson airplane songs to close out an episode or Steely Dan. Like it's like, there's, there's this lack of consistency in terms of the music that's being used. And sometimes it's, uh, it's like in the scene, like with the Steely Dan thing, or it comments on stuff like, like I, I don't mind the white rabbit use at the end because honestly I, I like that song, and also it just uh, it it illuminated a few things thematically for me. But the yeah, the desperate song that was playing over the Nadine thing just felt really on the nose and and just tonally odd, like very tonally strange. And like it's just I don't know, like a lyric heavy song that has really like light in- instrumentation that's hyper modern um, just did not work for me. So yeah, that was one of my nightmares as well. The the music is just really inconsistent. And yeah, and again, it clashes with the score. And I do agree that this is the most I heard the score actually um, dovetailing with the 94 version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, other things that maybe stood out, things you love, things you didn't love. Uh, one thing that I, we got to laugh uh, twice now at this point uh, are the paintings that Glenn does that are <laughs> a little too photorealistic for my taste. Like you couldn't do a little more subtlety there. Like it literally looks like when you go and uh, use a filter on Instagram that makes it look like a, a portrait. But Sammy was making a joke about what it would be funny if like, this would probably be more of like a David Wayne movie. It's if like Stu is like, oh my God, you saw this? And it's like a stick figure with just like a circle. It's like a <laughs> <laughs> what if he was going through as an Easter egg it's one. Of, it's the painting from Goodfellas of the old man in the yes. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been great. Like, oh my that god! Oh my god! Um, 
A thing that I loved, actually, uh, it's a Teddy moment. I love Teddy, but I kind of love where he talks about how he always thought church was fairy tales, you know, uh, at the end. And he's like, he's like, but, you know, this this woman bringing us to this town where there's weed dispensaries everywhere or whatever. He's just like, he's like, maybe I do believe in a higher power. I like that. I, I, I do like that. And this is something that I feel like they've made pains throughout the show to, to, to depict is, is they're showing that this isn't a Christian thing, right? Like this isn't like, you know, the good people are Christians, the bad people are, are Satanists or whatever. Um, and so I like that they actually have these characters say things like, yeah, I was never religious, but here I am. Like I was brought here and I'm still not convinced, you know, that this is Jesus Christ or whatever. Like this is just a, a thing that has happened. And so I kind of like the acknowledgement of faith and of religion in this world. World, uh, that you know could very easily fall into a sort of binary religious sort of thing. Uh, Justo, mm. did you have something? I, I do have a dreamscape, and it kind of goes back to Mike's number one number one fellow, and that's Greg Kinnear as yeah. Clint Bateman. Because another person I was kind of wary about being cast in this role, but I've always been a Greg Kinnear fan, and he's somebody who doesn't necessarily disappear into a role, but he's not such an icon, like an icon. Mm-hmm where you can't see anything but Greg Kinnear. Like, I can still see that this is Glenn Bateman. You know what I mean? Like, so I think he does a good job. I, I, I like seeing him kick loose, you know, smoking <laughs> oh, a little bit, a, hanging out. It's, it's, it's a good time with him. Uh, with another, him. Uh, go forward, Mac. Yeah. Um, Kojak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good dog. Yeah. Woof, woof. <laughs> Who loves you, baby? You good know? pup. Good pup. Um, do, we, do we think that um, there's room for him to become Cujo in Vegas? <laughs> You know, I think it's a little too early to say, but you know, who who uh, who who knows? I'm open to the It'd idea. Be amazing. Uh, I, I, I got one. one more. Oh, I, I got one. Jersey. Well, I got one go first, quick one go. because it's Glenn related. I just love his line when he's like, "What sort of horseshit judgment day spares the rats?" Uh, yeah. which just made me laugh. Uh, one, it, I think I mentioned this in the last episode too, uh, but because yeah, I, the whole rat sequence. But yeah, in the book, the rats actually do die, which I think is interesting. Um, and so deer and rats live, or no deer in this in this version, deer and rats live in this. Deer right? and rats live. Yeah. So, right. which I, I love that bit where they joke about the deer. Um, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's a very human moment that sort of. A very human moment existing within the context of the apocalypse. So I enjoy oh, that. There's something else. I don't know if this is a nightmare dreamscape. I laugh because I, I listened to your last episode when you were commenting on people using the F word all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's an instance in this where he goes, where Glenn's talking to Stu about his wife's tastes. Yes. And, she, and, and Glenn says, he's like, and he goes, can you imagine someone not liking a fucking potato chip? <laughs> it's like, whoa. I will yeah. say, there was, I don't know. There it's a little <laughs> abrasive. <laughs> there was a good fuck in this episode. We've already kind of quoted it a few times, but the way Harold, um, when he says, this happy asshole and his fucking dimples, and then his... Yes, his, that's his, the oh, yeah. best. Oh, and his voice it. breaks when he says it. It's like a really, really good moment where you remember he's a teen and that he's a jealous little teen boy whose voice still breaks. And I love that that moment. That's a great moment. Mike, what was your other... Yeah. Uh, I, I love the the Larry, little Larryisms that we're getting here. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the the scene with them hunting, and you get that great shot of them with the sunrise. But I love what he calls Stu, uh, which is uh, I have it up here, a cowboy fortune cookie, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was such a cool little nickname uh, for Stu that I liked. And, and it's just like little things like that. And I'm like, ah, I just want more of them. Like I, I, you know, I know we're not going to get a lot. Maybe we will when they start doing their walk, but like, it's just like little things like that where I'm just like, ah, there's chemistry here. It's just like, yeah. we're only getting glimpses of it, but um, um, we haven't talked about this. Speaking of Larry, what? we finally get 
Baby, Can You Dig oh, It? Oh, yeah. Do we like the song? Baby, Can You Dig It? I think it's one of the best songs I've ever heard. <laughs> well, Justin, you recorded the the one that was him? that was in uh, when we did like the premiere night. They played like the actual studio version. Oh, yeah, I, I recorded a good bit of it on my phone because I wanted it for my for my purposes only. Oh. It's funny because in the first episode or the second episode, it, it made it like he was about to perform it, yeah. but then he gets interrupted by Stuky. Uh, Wayne Stuckey, yeah. whatever his name is. Yeah, I would have liked to see an actual performance of this song because you know, well, say I'm what you will. My, I'm holding my heart out, Matt, because I feel like in episode seven or eight or something, we're going to get an amphitheater <laughs> on the, well, on we the cliff already, set up. We already kind of talked concert. about how it's kind of like a weird crossover between Blade, the new Blade Runner and uh, there's going to be a scene in Vegas where, you know, there's like a, a virtual version of him <laughs> singing a song. <laughs> a baby, can you, man? Well, speaking of scary things, I think it's time for us to venture over into the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all in the cemetery we talk about the things that scared us unfortunately i don't think much scared us here i would say that um i mean i'm kind of grasping here but uh in nick's dream i will say i just i liked um the pacing and the sound textures, like with the cards that they did with Nick's Dream and the idea of flags sort of doubling and things like that uh, and moving around. I just kind of, I, I think that scene mostly worked for me. Uh, and I think what worked about it was it was directed really well. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, I, I give that, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it scary, but I would call it a little bit unnerving. The moment when he starts shuffling the cards and it moves faster and faster, to me, that was kind of a an interesting moment, at least that that was a little bit unnerving. So, Justo? Yeah. I, I think the, uh, first, I, think the, I do think the makeup in this series and even the CGI makeup has been exceptional. And I do think the uh, crucifixion marks... Mm-hmm on the Ferrari guy were very effective. Yeah, I agree with the, that. The holes, and it wasn't obvious what was happening until you really looked at it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really terrific. And and the tube necks. Tube necks. The material still continues to Love be the tube neck. incredibly effective. Yeah, incredibly and the mucus. Yeah. It's so gross. I, yeah. I think that when the Ferrari guy shows up, I think the idea that this guy had been crucified, I think they mention it as well in the hospital and – you kind of see Franny at one point. I think I, I just I think that that the idea of them doing that in Vegas is still very scary to me. I, we don't necessarily see it in this episode, but I do think that they kind of uh, triggered that in me. My memory of that in the book being very frightening. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know that's necessarily credit to this episode, but I thought it was scary. Cool. Yeah, idea. Mike, any cemetery for you? The planchette. I have like the no, no nothing. Like, and that scene is like. <laughs> I think that's one of the scariest moments in the book. And it just didn't do anything for me. I mean, I remember even texting Randall when we were watching the episodes and I was just like, yeah, it's rushed. It's just like a gasp. And I, I don't know. So nothing really did anything for me here. I mean, I, I love the final shot with, uh, you know, Owen Teague and um, Ian Bailey with that, the, you know, the burial site and stuff like that. You really do feel like the sense of isolation that these two people are alone. And you do kind of get scared for Teddy knowing everything about Harold, but yeah, the mass grave with the lone sheet sheeted body in it is kind of a good image, you know, an unnerving image to go out on, uh, like the first of many deaths that are probably to come. So, 
Mm. It just reminds me of like yeah. the isolation in Ludlow. Yeah. And Lewis Creed is like up there all alone. Like it kind of reminds me of the two of them, like, uh, you know, surrounded by all these dead bodies. It would be creepy when you think about it. Do you think Ferrari guy's coming back? (laughs) I I hope so, you know, and I hope he brings back my buddy, uh, Victor Pascal. Because I I think there's going to be a a spin off series, Fear the Stand. Oh, I hope so. God. Um, Well, uh, let's move on to another section of the podcast that I think we'll have a little bit more fun with. That's uh, King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Here in King's Dominion, we talk about uh, the references to King's work throughout. I saw one blatantly obvious one, but you guys are usually tend to be better about finding some of the the more buried ones. So I'm curious. Yeah. What, what, what was the obvious? Yeah. One? What is it? Yeah. The Shining Carpet. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, we already talked about that from the preview, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah, we I saw that, that in the down. preview, but yeah, basically the the Ferrari man we we see flag lording over him at one point, and we see the shining carpet in the background. So pretty I, pretty common I, King reference, but yeah. I've been having trouble because, you know, and I mean, thank you CBS for sending us these screeners and stuff like that. that's great. I just it's not quite HD enough for me to pick up on some like things that are written. I think there's a moment where the, like when Stu meets them, there's something written on the boat. I couldn't make it out. I, I was like, maybe that out. was a reference. It, it, said, it said like Milo and something. There was nothing mm, came yeah. related But there. that's what I mean. I'm just having it hard to, to look at, to find details or little um, Easter eggs like that in well, these episodes. But I couldn't pick up, I didn't pick up on really anything, I don't think. I teased this hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Literally ready for hours it. Ago. I know, I was going to say. Um, now, I don't know if this is an accident or what, but in the scene at the abandoned baseball park, when Larry's sitting on one side, Joe's sitting in front of them, and then Nadine's behind them. Every time there's a shot of Nadine, behind her is the name of the baseball stadium's team, the mascot. And you know what the mascot is? What? They're the Hawks. Oh! And so the way it's positioned, it says Hawks, and then she's to the right. Now, it's not possessive, but I thought that can't be an accident, right? Ah, I mean, it might've been a happy accident. Like might've been something that they, uh, that's, but maybe it's room two thirty seven. but I like that room two thirty seven. Yeah. That's a good Hawks, And she is Hawks eventually. Right. So yeah. I thought that that was a, man, that's a, a pretty good, cool like thing. That. That's a good catch. Yeah, that's a fun one. Mike, yeah. did you have anything? I have one. It's, it's a, it's a stretch. Uh, but <laughs> we like stretches. They use, they use we Steely like Dan's do it again. And that also appeared in the dead zone, which ah. is also a Stephen King adaptation. So I, I do have a question. I always like to ask these questions. Like if X happened, would you have just immediately stopped watching this? What if Ferrari guys showed up in Christine? Would you stop <laughs> watching the show? No, we but joked about this. I think earlier. I would was... have cracked up though. <laughs> you think that, Oh, you, you think, do you guys think that the Ferrari guy is going to come back as the Ferrari? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> like haunting the Ferrari, like Christine. It'll be a Mister okay. Mercedes situation. I I hope so, and I hope it's a lot like uh, you know it chapter two, or should I say just like the la- the latter chapters oh. of it, and you like he's like a zombie driving it, you know. <laughs> Maybe he's like rolling the bed. In King's Dominion last week, you didn't mention this. What? Once again, we have a Stephen King prod adaptation that has a weird slow motion scene set to a pop song. Like at chapter two. Oh, yeah. With Call Me Angel in slow motion. That, that weird scene in that. That's kind of like, what is happening here? Very yeah, strange. We definitely so, talked about the, cho- the song choice, though. Oh, yeah. you did, but you just didn't mention it chapter two <laughs> yeah. parallel. I'm pro Island in the sun. That's not at the top of my head. That's not Look, at the I top always of my memory, unfortunately. <laughs> 
no, I think those are some good King's Dominions uh, for an episode that wasn't didn't have a lot of overt ones. Um, I think it's time to move on to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Here in Final Thoughts, we share our final thoughts on the episode. Mm. <laughs> We're going to give a clown nose ranking as well as a MVP. Who is your MVP of the episode? I'll kick things off. I'm going to give this episode two and a half uh, bright red Pennywise clown noses. I don't think it's a bad episode necessarily, and I actually think it moves pretty well in terms of, I don't know. As somebody who is intimately familiar with the material, obviously I don't struggle with like comprehension, but... But I do struggle with the idea that others will struggle with the comprehension. So I can definitely notice that this there's just too many cooks in this episode. It's chaotic and um and we we do we move so much we really don't get a chance to sit with the characters very much. I'm especially disappointed in just uh, the handling of Nick and Nadine. I think they're important characters, and I don't feel like they're served well in this episode, which is ostensibly supposed to focus and highlight them a little bit. It kind of just feels like we're moving plot pieces around instead of um, you know really watching a character grow or blossom. So um, yeah, two point five. But my MVP of the episode. Um, I guess I got to go Kinnear. Uh, I think he brings a, a spark and a vitality to the episode that um, is is exciting. And he's a fun new character to bring into the fold. And he brings new perspectives. And he brings a dog. And I love that aspect, too. So Ko- <laughs> he brings a dog. Uh, Kojak, Kujak, uh, it's good to have Kujak. you. We love to see you. Uh, Mike, what is your ranking here? I'm going to go with two stars. You know, this isn't stars. Bad, you know, or not stars. stars. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we get noses <laughs> here. Only so. stars. Uh, well, I was thinking of scars, uh, but um, no, I'm going to give two bright red Pennywise clown noses uh, with a, a dog treat for Kojak, or sorry, I say Kujak. <laughs> um, I, I think this is, you know, look, none of it's bad or awful. Like I, there are sections of this in stretches where I'm just like, wow, this is great. I'm still, I'm still entertained. I'm not bored, you know, and I can't obviously because it's impossible to be bored because there's just so much going on. Um, so I guess that's, you know, my biggest issue is just that the, that that's it. There's not, it's hard to feel any gravitas, you know, like in, and, and when, yeah. but when I do, I really do. And a lot of it is with my MVP, uh, shocker, Greg Kinnear, um, as Glenn Bateman. And, uh, so, you know, I, I I'm just gonna be the 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 broken record this season and just keep saying three seasons. Why didn't we get three seasons? Yeah. Um, and you could imagine me laying on a bed in Saigon, uh, smoking a cigarette with the Doors playing on in the background, and Francis Ford Coppola. Maybe a little in the, in uh, the white corner. rabbit or something. And a little white <laughs> rabbit too. It's, yeah. But yeah. Uh, Justo, your rank clown nose ranking, not stars or scars. Uh, and your MVP. never never. Um, I, I stand by my my four bright red Pennywise clown noses from the first episode. I think that the way that the flashbacks were structured and the way that the characters in that episode were handled is still very good. Mm-hmm. But when you try to multiply that structure by four in a shorter runtime, look, it doesn't matter how good of a performance anybody gives when the filmmaking lets you down, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And I'm going to give this two bright red Pennywise clown noses out of five. Um, very concerned about the next six episodes of the stand. <laughs> and that's as succinct as I can put it. The Justo strikes again. Uh, MVP <laughs> no, of the episode. I'm concerned. <laughs> MVP of the episode. I, I would say, once again, Owen Teague. But to be fair, um, Greg Kinnear just had 
more time on screen. Yeah. And the man himself. I'm going to give it to uh to Greg Kinnear of the soup. <laughs> talk soup. Or I should say talk soup. Yeah. Uh, been a fan of his for a quarter of a century, so congratulations <laughs> that's to more Greg Kinnear. I'd still, love it if we got like a one-on-one with him. Yeah, Mike didn't start liking him until after he left, the, well after he had left the suit, which is unbelievable. Yeah, that's true. You're an OG, but I, I would love it if we did get a one-on-one, and he's just like, you know, I listened to a couple episodes, and you motherfuckers have to keep bringing up the soup. I'm moving on from it. <laughs> oh, no, that's iconic. Talk The talk soup, he's amazing. He would not have the career he has without talk soup. It's true. I can tell you that right now. Uh, Who's the guy that followed him, that other guy? John Henson. I uh, can't stand him. No, he was great, too. Oh, I like John Henson. Henson. Uh, Jim Henson. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Jim Henson took over. uh, Actually, that's a little grim. Kojak was played by a puppet. (laughs) Ralph. Ralph played played Kojak. (laughs) I'd watch that. Uh, Mac, your clown nose ranking and your MVP, please. Oh, I'm going to give this. I think I gave the last one two, maybe two and a half. I'm going to give this. uh, You know, I'm going to give it two. Uh, two bright red Pennywise clown noses and uh, a couple of paintings. <laughs> um, I think that the good it, like Mike said, uh, there there's moments there are moments that work very few and far between. I'm still excited to be watching a stand adaptation. It's not like god awful or something like that. It's just I just think they're mishandling. And, and 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 again, it's almost like well, this is going to be the thing every episode. It's like just the dynamic of 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 the flashbacks and stuff. So, having said that, I I didn't think it was like you know terrible, but uh, I thought it was pretty entertaining in general. And uh, I, I'm interested to see what they do with the next few episodes. But yeah, two 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 with some paintings and my MVP <laughs> um, MVP is. I, I guess, I guess Bateman. I, I mean, I like Greg again. I like Greg Kinnear a lot, but um, sounds like you're waffling. Who else are you thinking of? Yeah, you really. I don't know. I mean, like, I guess char- standout characters to me, like, <laughs> honestly, it's like, <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's like Teddy and Harold. Just like, their scenes, I thought were more poignant and like important in terms of like developing Harold and. Uh, Give it to Bailey. Give it to yeah. him. I thought he you were going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Do I literally, I'll give it, I'll give it to in, Teddy. I'll give it to the episode. But I'll give, give it, it to Teddy. Him. I'm shocked <laughs> you didn't say Kojak. I, I, Kojak. I, I would have put know, twenty dollars down that you would have said Kojak. I was going to. I was going to, but we had already <laughs> made this joke earlier. Justin's holding up a picture of the the OG Glenn Bateman from <laughs> the original I'll miniseries. I'll tell you something, Mr. Flat. <laughs> But I, I do have one more thing to say before we well, say, on, say it's all yeah, going yeah. off the rails. <laughs> oh, Mac, did you, were you, I thought you, I thought you completed. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered something, and it's. I know we haven't met Julie yet, so I was trying to think of who's left to meet at this point. We've met everybody, yeah. But then I remember. We still haven't met Trash. Nope. Oh yeah, no. And um, trashy, trashy. Don't say anything. No, I'm no just spoils. saying. We still have not met. Trash can man yet so, all right. Buckle up. <laughs> I didn't look, think, oh, I also want to point out. I also want to point out that uh, I Justin and I are I haven't seen episode. We're watching along with the folks. Yeah, I've only seen the first. Like we have, we haven't seen those episodes yet. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> 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 
Well, this was fun, y'all. Fun discussion around this episode, and I imagine that next episode and the ones after that will be equally as wild. Uh, Much to discuss. We already have losers requesting to be on certain episodes because uh, of of what happens in them. So it's going to be exciting. Um, I think it's time to sign off. We'll be back next week with another recap. and um, For the House of the Dead. Creepy, you remember that game? Yeah, Did anyone play game. that arcade game? Yeah, I played remember it all the time. movie. Reloading, reloading, loading, loading. Yeah, yeah, uh, good times. Let's sign off. Long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network.